I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football. I like football season all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast, Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're live here on Monday morning, reviewing all things Week 16 in the NFL. Hope everybody had a good Christmas weekend. But we're back to work here, Sam. Yeah, didn't last very long for us. No, not even a day. Did you have a nice Christmas? (laughs) Yeah, it was good. Yeah, had to watch a lot of football. Hell of a uh, cooking experience yesterday. Yeah, I saw you sent me a bunch of things to juggle. You know. It's not so much any one item. It's all at the same time. Yeah. It's awkward. How was it? It's good. It looked good. Yeah. The spatchcock turkey works. The same as the chicken. Yeah. It's really a cheat code. You should, no, nobody should ever roast a bird in the conventional way. Spatchcock. Spatchcock. Always. All right. Well, noted, once the, uh, once the snow clears over here, mm. I will, uh, I'll think about that. Also, the temperature goes back up. Yeah. It was quite chilly the entire weekend since the last time we talked, but... Um, we got 15 games to review, so let's get into it, shall was we? Friday the coldest you've the coldest temperature you've experienced because I think it was a new low for here. For I me. mean, being from New England, there had to have been some time, but right. like that definitely felt. I mean, it was but legit, that was like cold, cold. Yeah, even like you know the way when you get to winter, there's always people in like you know South Dakota and Minnesota. They're like posting temperatures that just don't seem real. Yeah, or Canada. Um, this was temperatures that like. You know, they they stacked up along with the South Dakotan people when it's like wind chill of negative 33. Yeah. Like that's cr- not a real temperature. Yeah, that had to be up there for me because it was five to seven below, whatever it was. When it reaches the point where it doesn't matter if you're talking Celsius or Fahrenheit because that's the crossover temperature is like minus 30 something. We did have that request to convert all of our temperatures to Celsius. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to do that. No. I Look. But yeah, with like the wind chill and all that stuff that day, it was what, 30 below? I spent 10 minutes outside yeah. handling my car. I'm like, how do, how do they play football in this weather? We, uh, we appreciate all of our international listeners. We do. Uh, but that way, madness lies, you know? Like, we're not going to be talking about, instead of fourth and in inches, I'm not going to be talking about fourth and centimeters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're not, we're not converting to metrics. You're just going to have to accept that this is a dumbass country that uses archaic measuring systems. It's much better. It's, it's really not, but, but that's what we're stuck with. Yeah, 32's freezing, zero's Really, really freezing. It's pretty clear. It's pretty easy. Okay. All right, let's get into the games. Uh, Way back Thursday night, we have to at least touch on this. Jaguars. Jaguars. 19. Jets 3. Zach Wilson got benched for Chris Strebler. Yeah. And um, we did did a PFF NFL daily immediately. It was an emergency. So we did one right after with uh, about Zach Wilson. His benching, his time might be completely done with the Jets. Strebler comes in. Picks up 54 of the 66 rushing yards for the Jets. And I think the highlight was when they ran a play action, had the tight end wide open down the seam. Uncovered, For for an age, as you would say. Hmm. And Strebler saw him about four seconds too late, underthrew it for a completion. It was amazing. Of 27 yards. Got like a standing O. Yes. And that was like, that was the highlight of the day. It was so badly underthrown and late. It was amazing. I texted you when that play happened. How was he so late on this play? I had time to scream, 
hit him, hit him, hit him three different times at the TV before the ball left his hand. Like, yeah. the tight end is that open. I'm like, hit him, hit him, hit him. And then finally, he throws the ball. It's like five yards underthrown. The tight end stops, goes down, picks it up off the turf, catches it, doesn't get a touchdown because it was so late. And the entire, like, Jet stadium goes nuts because it was a positive passing play by somebody other than Zach Wilson. Anybody other than Zach Wilson. Yeah, go listen to our daily because we did get into it. I, it. It was odd to me that Zach Wilson coming off of not necessarily his worst performance of his career against the Lions last week. Pretty good performance by Zach Wilson standards. By last standards. Week. He was being booed everything he did. Yes. Right? Running onto the field, boo. Threw a pass, <laughs> boo. Overthrow, underthrow, boo. Like, everything was booed. Well, as soon as anything went wrong, like anything good that he did last week went out the window and it's like, oh, it's this asshole again. So it looks like Zach Wilson might be completely done with the Jets. They fall they fall to seven and eight. The Jaguars move to seven and eight. Another solid performance from Trevor Lawrence, their offense. Uh, I mean, they didn't dominate or anything, but the Jag, the Jags had this thing in hand. Yeah. Um, so this is setting up uh, the Jets potentially being on the outside looking in as far as the playoff picture goes. And then the Jags vault into first place. Tied for first with the Tennessee Titans. They have the tiebreaker at the moment. And both teams this week are going to play a meaningless game because... Is that the first time that's happened where week 17 has been meaningless, but week 18 actually means everything? I mean, yes, because we've had how many NFL seasons of week 17 and 18? The second to last week meeting? No, I think that's probably happened at some point. Because it's very weird. And then you play that play-in where, game. Like, it doesn't matter if these teams lose this week because the week, the final week is against each other and the loss can't change anything. So yeah. whoever wins the final week matchup between the two, it's winner takes all. I'm sure it's happened previously. I can't remember offhand, but um, that's what's happening. Um, Jags and Titans going to play what looks to be a meaningless game this coming week, but next week, the last week, week 18, they're going to play each other head-to-head, winning in. For all the marbles. For all the marbles, yeah. In the uh, in the AFC South. So that's that. That's all we've got on Thursday Night Football. Uh, the Jets are an interesting story. We'll see what they do. Um, I think there's a whole offseason discussion. There's a lot of uh, revisionist history, mm. right? You know, the people coming out, of course Zach Wilson's a bust. Of course. We all knew this. There's a lot of people trying to. So Hold that... on. Let me just preface this, by the way. I am very guilty of saying there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people. Yeah. There's billions of people in the world. Of course, there's going to be somebody that had a take that Zach Wilson's terrible, right? So there's going to be some takes yeah. out there. There are quite a lot of people trying to act like, well, all of this was on tape. This was obvious. Like, why, would, why, did, why was he ever a big prospect in the first place? I do think it's worth asking the question of how did he become so uh, very quickly universally accepted as, well, he's just number two. Lawrence is number one, and Wilson's number two. And then it's then it's... Then it's, do you like Fields, Mac Jones, or Trey Lance? Like, who's your third? But it was weird that there was a period of time that was like a couple of weeks where all of a sudden it was just like, oh, I guess Zach Wilson's locked in at number two. The Jets appear to really like him. That's that done. By the way, this happened happened at this time of the year. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of the people are like, oh, my gosh, the Jets only liked Zach Wilson because he made a cool throw at his pro day. Right. Which was three months later. Right? That was not there two months later, whatever it was. But the people that are like, oh, his tape was terrible and the guy was never a good prospect in the first place. Like, you could have seen this coming a mile away. I mean, there weren't many people at all that did not have Zach Wilson very firmly near the top of the draft. Now, there were people that pointed out a lot of potential problems in his tape. Oh, yeah. But it's very difficult to do that and not also um, 
criticize like Patrick Mahomes, right? Like part of the problem with the Zach Wilson thing is it's not that he can't do X, Y, and Z, Z. It's that he, we don't, we haven't seen it because like the offense, the dude was never pressured. So he hasn't done all these things. So it's not like this is a flaw in his game. It's just like, I don't know how this translates once you put him in an offense where he's going to get pressure and he's going to have to operate in structure and, you know, blah, 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 which was kind of the same question with Mahomes. It's like, it's not that I don't think he can do this. It's that he operates in a different way than he's going to have to operate in the NFL, which means projecting that as a massive question mark. So, yeah. um, so for example, it makes perfect logical sense. I believe Chris Sims also loved Mahomes, right? Like that's one of his, I got this one right, assholes. I, I think Chris Lamo, Sims. Um, Mahomes, Lamar, and Josh Allen. Yeah, so Chris Sims is a big toolsy quarterback type of guy, right? So Sims... Sims has taken a lot of crap because he thought Zach Wilson was the number one quarterback in that draft. But it makes logical, consistent sense to like Patrick Mahomes as a prospect and also like Zach Wilson as a prospect. The people that would confuse me are like, well, I thought Zach Wilson was, was awful as a prospect, but I really liked Mahomes. I don't quite understand that consistency. And to be fair, I haven't actually seen any of those people because anybody that's sort of trying to rewrite history a little bit also had Zach Wilson ranked pretty high or had Mahomes ranked very high. It's like, you know, it's a little weird anyway. Yeah. I mean, there was also a lot of people who loved Deshaun Kaiser one year. Yeah. Completely whiffed on him, of course. And My then take the next away, year also loved Patrick Mahomes and right. hit that, right? My takeaway with all this is that projecting quarterbacks is still the most difficult crapshooty thing in the entire draft. Like, NFL teams suck at it and they pay millions of dollars to people trying to mas master all this assemble all the information, get everything, including stuff you don't have you know, any, any kind of access to. And they still screw it up at a hit rate of like 50-50. Two out of three get them wrong. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Like I have a whole – You probably shouldn't be, you know, uh, I saw this one coming a mile away. It's a whole discussion. We're going to have it. We'll have it this offseason about the QB Val stuff and, and everything. We'll get into it. All right, so that was Thursday night. Then all the games were on Saturday. Let's go through – I don't even know where to start. Where do we want to start here? With the Saturday stuff. I don't know. I like to start on the East Coast. The East All right, Coast. let's start locally here. Bengals 28, uh, 22, Patriots 18. One of the weirdest games of the weekend. Cincinnati gets up 22 to nothing. Only win by four against the Patriots. Yeah. Um, neither team could hit an extra point. I think they, were, they both missed two, two apiece. And early on, it was like dominant Bengals offense. Patriots couldn't get a stop. Bengals looked like... I mean, frankly, the uh, dynasty Patriots, right? Just dominant up and down the field. Joe Burrow, precision, throwing the ball down the field to T. Higgins in particular. But Higgins, Chase, Trenton Irwin had a couple touchdowns, could have had another one. So the Bengals look like they're dominating. And then all of a sudden, there's a pick six by Marcus Jones. Mm -hmm. I'll let you get into that incredible uh, sideline work that he had there. But the Patriots scored two touchdowns. One's a Marcus Jones up the sideline pick six and then a, uh, a prayer basically. They had three total touchdowns, but two of them were pick six and then a prayer with four minutes left in the three minutes left in the game on third and 29, where the ball gets batted back to Jacoby Myers for a 48-yard touchdown. And then after that, New England has a chance. They've got the ball in the red zone, down four, under two minutes. Ramondre Stevenson fumbles. Bengals pick it up and hold on to the win. Yeah. So, it wasn't even a game of two halves, that old cliche. It was a game that made a lot of sense for most of it and then upended and went to hell <laughs> late on and almost completely flipped around. 
the Bengals for the first half had this completely in control. Joe Burrow was absolutely dialed in, you know, looked like he'd looked over the last month of the season or so. T. Higgins was just, like, dominating the small – he was like Gulliver in the land of the Lilliputians. The Lilliputians? God, I can't even say that this the time in the morning. Um, like, he was just a giant swatting aside these tiny New England DBs trying to cover him um, consistently throughout that game. So he was crushing it. The, the Bengals were rolling. New England's punter had a weird play where he, like, dropped the, the long snap and then ended up – uh, picking it up and managing to like rugby kick it left footed, which is quite impressive actually. Way better than remember was it last week the Giants guy did that or did something similar where he dropped it and ended up like drop kicking it kind of. Uh, yeah. This was way more impressive because he actually like scooped it up and then changed foot and left footed it. Um, but like the the Bengals were just absolutely rolling, and then late in the game it just kind of flipped around and all of a sudden New England were getting chances to to bring this back and yeah look they got the the kind of prayer of a, a touchdown which is like a legit hail mary which then ends up getting like batted down accidentally and just lands in jacoby meyer's hands who walks in for a touchdown but then um they remember they only get the ball back because uh jamar chase gets stripped of the ball that's what it was yeah, yeah. jamar chase fumbles so even then they they needed like the extra chance when he came along because the Bengals had the ball robbed of them or you know stripped, fumbled, um, and New England just gets presented with this golden opportunity to pull an absolute miracle out of the bag. Marcus Jones on the forefront of that one as well. What a fascinating player he really is. Now He's he had their those best big offensive plays. weapon. He had those big plays. He also gave up eleven catches for one hundred sixty nine yards and eight first downs. Yeah, he might actually covered. be a better offensive player than he is defensive at this point. So Jones was a he's a third down third round rookie, five eight one seventy five, mm-hmm. dynamic punt returner at Houston, and just moved differently. His matchup against Calvin Ridley, right? Like no, Calvin, Calvin Austin, Calvin, Calvin Ridley, Calvin Austin, Memphis and Houston, both like five foot eight, yeah, one hundred and eighty pound max. They're both tiny, but like twitched up, quick, yeah. fast, and just the back and forth battle between both of them was incredible. It reminded me of the UFC weight classes when you get is it the flyweight, which is one hundred and twenty five pounds, where these guys are just so we small. Should talk about it Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Special guest Wednesday. Big special guest. Yeah, tease, the, good tease. Uh, yeah, we break break out the name. You could do that. You can name drop it. John Anik. UFC play-by-play, lead play-by-play, only play, whatever he is. The yeah. main guy, John Anik, is going to be on the podcast. Joe Rogan's partner. Sure, yeah. The dude Safe. knows incredible amount of football, so that's going to be fun. Um, but, like, the UFC, the flyweight uh, division, I believe, is the 125-pound one. I, I mean, look, you over there pushing three bills at 6'10", or whatever you are, right? Huge individual. Me, normal-sized human being over here, I'm still 180 pounds. So these guys are like almost 60 pounds smaller than I am, right? They're tiny human beings. But because of that, they move at a speed that doesn't make sense for regular human people. Like it's just, it's like it's sped up. The tape is, you know, it's on a different level. That's what what Calvin Austin and Marcus Jones look like. They just moved at like a freakish, twitchy, like lightning sped up tape thing. It's insane. Um, and the two of them going back and forth was was like that. But that's what this guy looks like, whether he's playing offense, defense, or special teams. He just operates at a different speed. Now, he needs to because he's tiny. 
And if you match him up against T. Higgins, it's kind of harsh. But it's crazy watching him play. As I was watching this game, too, I was thinking about the Bengals and their future and how much salary cap they're going to have locked up in Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and T. Higgins. Yeah. That's the next big discussion in Cincinnati, right? Like, what's T. Higgins worth? I think Jamar Chase is still the alpha one oh, of course. big play thread and all that stuff. But Higgins is a one for, what, 15 teams? But it's the right place right to now, have it locked teams. up in, right? Like, if you're going to yeah. lock up that kind of money in three players, those are the right positions to lock them up. Your and quarterback the, and his two favorite receivers. And then uh, Dan Brugler of the, the Athletic had a mock draft a couple weeks ago where they drafted Notre Dame tight end Michael Mayer, who's maybe the best tight end prospects in the, in the draft. And it's like, man, that's, that is how Cincinnati should build. Right, you have to you have to keep up with Kansas City and Buffalo, and mm. we'll talk more about it as we go. But again, I just think the Bengals are so well equipped on offense. It does take, yeah, Chase puts the ball on the ground, and Burrow had a miscommunication interception, two of them really, um, but it took a, a a weird pick six, a miscommunication in the red zone where Devin McCourty picks him off, this fumble. The Bengals really dominated this game, let the Patriots back into it. In the end, though. New England falls to 7-8. and eight. They're just outside the playoff picture right now. Cincinnati moves up to 11-4. and four. The division, it's all in their hands, and there is a, there's a number one seed opportunity. If, if, if Kansas City loses so one of the, the two game games, yeah. it's unlikely. But if Kansas City loses to either what, the Raiders or the Broncos, Bengals could still get that number one seed. But I thought Cincinnati, once again, they played well defensively. Um, overall, another really good performance by one of the best teams in the league. And I think we've established this top three in the AFC, right? Bills, Chiefs, and Bengals. Also somewhat fitting that this insane end to a game ended up in uh, Scorigami, 22-18. Never we, happened. We, we love a good Scorigami. And you didn't pick it. Or Harry didn't pick it. Harry, by the way, crushed your baseline. I know. The boy had like five wins by the time the early games on Saturday were done, which is, you know, a good week for you. you Better than like five week. of my weeks. Well, you had four the entirety of last week. So he, he beat that by the time the early games were done. Yeah, Harry's tearing it up. Which, tore it up. a little bit of me feels cheated, you know? Because that's going to dramatically improve your overall season record. The two games where I said Steve would have done the opposite, I think I lost those two at least. <laughs> so here we are. Um, anything else? Not from that game, On no. this game? What a weird one. Yes. Um, like I said, 22 to 18. Score got me. The PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Well, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. Appreciate our friends at Western and Southern. It's the Western and Southern studio. And uh, please do check that out if you have not yet already, westernsouthern.com slash PFF. All right, let's just get this Baltimore. What do we do? We doing all the biggest games? You were going uh, geographically for some reason at the start of this. Well, yeah, the, the strategy here, Sam, is we start so early, you want to get as many East Coast teams in early because presumably they're going to be up earlier yeah. than your Central Mountain and Pacific time people. That, that I pretty sure is the only and first time you've done that though no i I mean it's an interesting strategy i do it i'm not necessarily against it but it usually works out well because you start with the one o'clock games and you work your way to the force whatever yeah all right let's just go buffalo bills 35 chicago bears 13 it was a close game for a while the bills pulled away in the end it was 21 to 13 into the fourth quarter though 
for Buffalo, but they score a couple touchdowns late. Josh Allen and on a scramble, and then a 13-yard touchdown to uh, Dawson Knox. Uh, another another one where Josh Allen throws a couple weird interceptions. Some, some <sighs> Wyoming flashbacks in there, Sam. Uh, by the way, we do need to mention the weather, not just because we were cold and we <laughs> talked about that early on, but weather, cold, wind had an effect this weekend, catching the ball, throwing yeah, the ball. Yeah, I mean, so, yes, there were a lot of really cold games this week. The This one was one of the worst. It wasn't the lowest temperature, I don't think, but it was the second lowest maybe. The Bills uh, PR or the Bills Twitter or whatever, they were saying this is, I think, on record as the coldest away road game for Buffalo in their history, something really? like that. Yeah. Is that bad? Road game. Like, I mean, you know, I'm sure Buffalo's had more cold games than are at home than on the road generally yeah, I understand. just based off location but yes coldest road game in buffalo bills history so weather was definitely a factor in a lot of games i don't think it was a big factor in this one to be honest as much as it was cold as hell uh everybody was able to operate fine like it wasn't you know crippling either team necessarily but it was another game where josh allen just seemed intent on throwing the ball to bears defenders and they were really just – I don't understand what he's doing. Like, completely inexplicable, like, double coverage. And you're just going to toss – double coverage. The first one, like, it's double coverage. It's a deep over route. Um, okay, it's cover three, so I can kind of get why you don't factor in the, the, the far side corner dropping all the way into that. But even so, like, it's one-on-one. The safety's there. He sees it. So you're throwing Isaiah McKenzie – deep against a, a free safety it's not exactly a you know a high percentage play and then when the second corner gets involved you're just pitching it straight to him um then like he just he just kept going there was another one where he you know rolls out of the pocket and it's like that yeah, double coverage let's fire it in there again no that's not gonna work um i don't know i he seemed incredibly i i, I don't quite understand like what why he was so intent on throwing the ball into double coverage against DBs that were that had position and eyes on him the whole way. Yeah, I think we're only if you're like, hey, the Bills won thirty-five to thirteen. Why are you starting with Josh Allen's two interceptions, other turnover-worthy play? It's because the Bills have these high standards, right? Because we're trying to compare them to the Chiefs. And well, to they're the, the number one seed to the right? Bengals. They're the number one seed, and we're looking at. Yeah, they they did eventually pull away from the Bears. They should have, right? Devin Singletary averages almost nine yards per carry. Uh, James Cook does average nine yards per carry. Josh Allen adds 41 yards on the ground and, and did have that score late. You know, those, uh, the, the floor of the offense being, you know, risen by the, uh, by the quarterback, you know, his, his rushing ability, like all of that was in there because Allen didn't have the best game as a passer. Hits Dawson Knox, I uh, know, sorry, Gabe Davis early with a long touchdown, but passing game was very inconsistent there. But I think when you're looking at the Bills and saying, okay, is this the year that they're going to, you know, make the play? I think you got to keep an eye on on Allen. And, yeah. and I know, like, the actual interception numbers. I, I saw somebody post, like, oh, he only had one interception over the last four weeks. His elbow injuries are fine. It's like, if you just can't use interception totals to tell a narrative, this guy's taking care of the ball, not taking care of the, You just can't do it. Like, you can't use this stat to, to, to create a story. When, when a guy has four dropped interceptions during that same period or whatever that time is, right? So to me, the story has been the one that we've told the whole thing. Josh Allen is awesome. He's makes special plays every single week. The difference for the Bills is probably going to be whether or not 
he turns it over again, right? Like, it, it does he try to do too much in certain games? And that one where he threw back across his body yeah. was very Wyoming, right? Like, that was one of those things when you were watching the film when he's coming out of college being like, oh, man, you can't do this in the NFL. And it's true. Like, you can't throw back across your body the way he did. It, got, it was one of those dropped interceptions. So that's why I think we're being picky. Bills are a better team. They dominated the Bears up front and ran for 254 yards and finally pulled away. But um, we're just nitpicking things that are, you know, could come back to bite. I also think – the Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes have kind of broken convention in terms of what you can and can't get away with in the NFL. So it's very difficult now, I think, to like how do you coach those guys to stop doing risky things? You know, because so these are that that interception or dropped interception rather that you're talking about is classic like Brett Favre. You're trying to do too much. You're throwing a ridiculously ill-advised pass. Most of the time in the NFL, that's a problem because you just don't have – you can't get it there in time, right? There's too much – the ball's in the air for too long. It allows DBs uh, to, to cover an incredible amount of ground. They're really good at the NFL level. They're going to get there before the ball arrives. Pick it off, and you look like an idiot. Even Brett Favre, even apparently Josh Allen, you can't get away with that at the NFL level. But Patrick Mahomes apparently can, and for a long period of time, Josh Allen has been able to. So – it's hard, I think, to then bring that in to like the film room and be like, can't do this. It's like, well, what about the 17 times before that that it actually worked? These are big plays that have, have been a huge part of our success. Like, I can't, I can't stop doing that. And I think, so that's a dilemma, I think, for a team yeah. like Buffalo, who all of a sudden, their quarterback has started making those mistakes. It's not a problem for Kansas City, because Mahomes is somehow still making magic happen. And it's like, fine, just let him work until it doesn't work anymore. Then we'll figure out what we're doing. But for the Bills, all of a sudden you have Josh Allen making these types of plays where they're getting punished for them or almost getting punished for them. And it's like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you find the balance between, hey, let's maybe not make the Brett Favre backbreaking mistake and still be you because, you know, that's why we're good. Um, but that, yeah, that play was like a classic Brett Favre mistake. Now, if you want to say, the weather was a factor. I think you could probably explain that third one, the overthrow to James Cook over the middle. That could have been weather. Like yeah. that was cold. I mean, the even ball the looked throw- like it came out of his hand wrong. It, it soared too high and just went straight to a, a linebacker. Even right? the throwback across his body that we're talking about, that's a long throw. Yeah. It's going to get caught up in the wind and the cold and all that stuff. Right. right but it got there quickly. That's just the classic, like, nobody else in the NFL can even attempt that. Like, it's ridiculous. But. Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes can and do, and most of the time it comes off. But as I say, specifically for Allen, recently it's not coming off. And I don't know how you I don't know how you fix that because I don't know that you necessarily just want him to stop doing those because I think he is capable of making them a lot of the time. So now you're just in this weird world of, I don't know, hoping that he gets lucky more often than he gets unlucky or I just hoping he rediscovers the magic. Like, I don't know what the solution to that is. On the other side, Justin Fields only ends up with uh, seven carries for 11 yards in this one. So, you know, the Bears offense that's been relying on his legs, the Bills took that away for the most part. Fields still threw the ball all right. I mean, 119 yards, he didn't throw the ball a lot, but threw the ball fine when he was asked to do that, but you didn't have the dynamic rushing ability. What, what, were they trying to uh, do what I said? Uh, not not rely on fields, run as much, you know, develop him as a passer, take some hits this year, have only 13 points in this game, take some hits right now to play for the future? I don't think so. 
I think what was happening is that they, well, for start, two different drives crapped out because receivers dropped the ball on third third down conversions. Yeah. So, you know, this is, it's football is such a weird game where all it takes is one play to get screwed up and all of a sudden you're just not on the field anymore and it changes like the overall numbers of what you would be looking at, right? It's like, what is the offense doing? Well, the offense needs to be on the field to be doing anything. So if a guy drops the ball on third down, all of a sudden the offense isn't on the field anymore and your numbers get thrown out of whack. Um, that happened twice in this game where routine third down conversions fields hits a guy in the hands and they just drop it and don't convert and all of a sudden they're off the field. So, yeah, like I, I thought Fields pretty, played a pretty good game overall. Like he was, he was the opposite really of, of Josh Allen. He didn't put the ball in harm's way. He had that one bomb to Vellis Jones Jr. who came up with it. Um, 44 yarder, nice. Yeah, didn't have a ton of impact on the ground with the the running but still had a couple of plays here or there where you thought yeah he's he's a real problem to try and uh, contain all right bills moved to 12 and 3 as we've mentioned they're still sitting there as the number one seed tied with kansas city at 12 and 3 and uh bills have the bengals next week monday night football right here in cincinnati so the only thing keeping buffalo from the number one seed is the number three seed the bengals and uh the patriots in week 18. Another play in the game that yeah, the kind of theme of this game was Justin Fields, I think, getting let down by his receivers. There was another play where they failed on fourth down because Ryan Griffin's knee hit just before he managed to extend the ball over the first down line. Like, that was the kind of bang-bang play where it looked like he got it, but the when you look at it on replay, his knee hit just before he was able to actually extend the ball away for the, for the first down. I think, like, Justin Fields did enough for his offense to be more efficient than it was in this game, but everybody else around him kept managing to, to let him down on key plays and get them off the field. Then all of a sudden, Buffalo was able to get a couple of scores and, and make the game look, I think, a much more comfortable thing than it could have should have been. I mean, Bears Bears were in it for most of the game. Yeah. For sure. I mean, like this were, looked like they were scaring the Bills at one point. I mean, there was probably yeah Chiefs fans saying, "All right, Bears, let's do this. Get right. us that number one seed." The Bears, like I've been, you know, we were in this world of uh, picks against the spread. And it's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm very reluctant to pick against a Justin Fields-led Chicago Bears team against the spread because they're so difficult to stop, even if their defense is garbage. Um, and this one looked like a game where that was exactly the case. It's like Buffalo is a way better team across the board. But Josh Allen is being careless with the football, and Justin Fields is so hard to stop, even for a defense as good as Buffalo's. Like, they're, they're going to keep in this, and they're going to keep it uh, closer than a big number against the spread. Now, ultimately, it was wrong because, you know, Buffalo pulled away and, and Chicago's like, receivers did let him down that much. But it's really hard to, you know, just to, to stop Justin Fields making good things happen. All right, let's get to one of maybe the surprises of the weekend. The Carolina Panthers, 37. Detroit Lions, 23. And maybe, am I over exaggerating this is one of the surprises no, of the weekend this was insane it was a dominant outing from the carolina panthers they finished with 320 yards on the ground that's what was crazy like um in the lions sorry coming in the lions were the uh, nobody wants to play the lions yeah nobody wants to play the lions in the playoffs maybe except carolina um i just want to say this really quick carolina is playing the, the bucks next week um basically a win and in game in the NFC South. Not exactly because Car both teams would still have to, or Carolina in particular would need to win the following week to secure the NFC South. 
They're six and nine. They're playing a win and in type of game next week against the Bucs. The NFC South has been trash. But I want to say this Panthers game was probably the best playoff level performance of any team in the NFC South this year. Mm-hmm. For whatever that's worth, a solitary game. The Panthers are just the one of the weirdest teams in the league this year uh, because they look horrible one week and great the next week. But this particular one-game setting, if Carolina brought this against the Cowboys in week one at home or in the playoffs or something, they're pulling an upset. Right? That's how the Panthers played in this game, dominating up front yeah, 320 but, yards. But I don't think this was – you know, it's all about what is actually powering whatever weird thing has happened. So this is like <laughs> – this is an incredibly Detroit Lions thing to do. Like, we're all about hashtag restore the roar, and they've taken themselves from no chance whatsoever of making the playoffs to um, actually they have a pretty good shot of making them. We think they're going to, you know, they win out, they're going to get there. And then they give up 320 yards on the ground, which, by the way, was less than it was on pace to be for most of the game, um, and just get blown out of it by a Carolina team. And I don't think it was because, like, Carolina came in with this irresistible run game and they just got crushed up front. They were just – it was like they'd never practiced run defense. The run fits were all over the place. They were blowing this way more than Carolina was, like, taking it from them. They just showed up and just could not – not even that they couldn't stop the run, didn't know how to stop the run. Like, every time you looked up, the, com- the irresistible combination of Deontay Foreman and Chuba Hubbard – we're breaking off like 20, 30-yard gains just left, right, and center. That doesn't happen unless people are outside of the gaps they're supposed to be in. Like, that's the problem. It's, this is not like Carolina showed up and, oh, that's a, that's a performance yeah. that would shock anybody in the playoffs. You're like, saying no. it was a Lions issue. Yes, because anybody else in the playoffs would have a guy in the gap that they, were, that they ran through uncontested for 20 yards. You're killing my narrative here. Yes. So uh, it's interesting because... Uh, from a grading standpoint, you don't have necessarily the most dominant run blocking grade from the Panthers as right, a team. Because it wasn't them. <laughs> you have a terrible run defense grade from the Lions. There were gaping holes, though, right? I mean, it was it was it was bad. And it, isn't it one of those that doesn't make a ton of sense? I'm not like the Lions defense has they were they were horrible early in the season. Yes, they had been so much better in the second half of the year. Um, and and usually. We talk when de- when we talk about defensive turnarounds, it's completely dependent on the quarterbacks you play, right? You had the stretch against tough quarterbacks, you looked bad. You start facing backups and lesser quarterbacks, your defense looks good. But for Detroit, it was like no, they they're just playing better, they're playing tougher and all that stuff. We had talked about all the investment in the defensive line and how the you know the Aiden Hutchinsons and Olympic McNeils of the world had been playing better. Like all of that was just thrown out the window in this game, and the Lions get absolutely gashed on the ground. And offensively, they still played a decent game. Like of all the games that we've pushed back on, hey, Jared Goff is you know not playing that great. He's you know he's uh, you know it's the system. He's getting away with some stuff. Like he actually played a pretty good game in this one. I know he's playing from behind most of the game, but the offense was still kind of there for Detroit, just too little, too late, and they just could not get out of their own way, make any kind of stop. Yeah, on the like it's not like Detroit's run defense was good before this game. It ranks in the twenties somewhere when you look at. You know, yards uh, yards per attempt allowed. It looks the same kind of area when you look at before contact. It's generally not a good defense. It's it's below average in run defense. But they went from below average to like, have you ever seen the run game before? Like, what what is this? Um, that's the surprising element. It's that a team 
that had everything to play for, that had put themselves in a position to actually make the postseason, to restore the roar, to do all this stuff to, to that everybody was talking about, to then show up and have a performance which can only be explained by lack of preparation or lack of give a crap. Like, they just, like that's the, the unexplainable and kind of inexcusable thing. Like, this was bad. This, was, this spoke to sort of bad preparation, care, attention, all those kinds of things. This was not like you got outfought, you got dominated by a better team. You just showed up and people blew routine assignments time after time after time. And that, that's problematic. Uh, Sam Darnold with, with another really good game statistically. You had LaVisca, part of that was LaVisca Chenault weaving through the defense for a 43 yarder. But um, Darnold overall, though, playing pretty well. I mean, he, he ran a little bit as well. And doesn't he look, I don't know how closely you've tried to watch Sam Darnold, he looks a little bit faster to me, a little bit more explosive, throwing the ball a little bit better. All the stuff uh, his QB trainer, Carson Palmer, said. You know, they're, they're working Jordan on his. Palmer. Jordan Palmer. That uh, sorry, Jordan. Carson made way too much money to bother himself. Oh yeah, yeah. Carson's not. Too, he's just <laughs> kicking back, watching these games right. on Sunday. If that, it's probably golfing. Jordan though, he's grinding. Jordan's mm. grinding and uh, working with these guys. But he was, you know, they've worked on Donald and his movement patterns and efficiency. He looks a little better with that stuff. And uh, yeah. it is fa- like the the Panther. Think about the Panther season for a minute here. They they're going to this game against the Bucks next week. They looked so incompetent on offense early on with Baker Mayfield. They looked even worse with P.J. Walker for a week where he couldn't complete a pass beyond the line of scrimmage. Then they go and beat the Bucs pretty handily the next week where P.J.'s dropping dimes all over the place. Dialed in. Then they have games where they can't even stop the Bengals for a play in Cincinnati. Like they've, like, is there a, a more inconsistent team than the Panthers? So I don't want to well completely under like overrate this one game where they dominated here because they've had games like this throughout the season, right? They did it Thursday night football. They, they took it to the Falcons, all this stuff. But week to week, you don't know what you're going to get. But now are the Panthers coming together with Darnold, the run game, the defense, even though it uh, looks like J.C. Horn has an injury? Uh, well, is this Panthers team dangerous now? How much credit should Steve Wilkes be getting right now? Um, because all of a sudden, they are legitimately in playoff contention. Now, they're in playoff contention because they're in the NFC South, which is a joke. And simply getting anywhere in the vicinity of 500 puts you in playoff contention in. in the NFC South. So, for example, you know, <laughs> they're on a run of three wins in the last four or four wins in the last five, uh, four wins, th- sorry, yeah, four wins in the last six. Um, but those wins have come against Atlanta, Denver, Seattle, and now Detroit, which is, you know, okay, not exactly amazing. The losses have come against Baltimore and Pittsburgh, which, again, like, no, that's like light the world on fire. Um, but because it's in the NFC South, it's like you only need to get to a few wins and you're right there. Like, should should Steve Will... I mean, it's definitely better and more organized than it was when Matt Rule was in charge and like the, the offense and the, the entire program earlier this year was, was a disaster, was a farce. And that's why people got fired. Um, does Steve Wilkes deserve a ton of credit for like pulling this together or is this just like... You're not what was there before, therefore you win. It's kind of like the Doug Peterson over Urban Meyer. Right. So I think there's there's two ways of looking at this really quick. Um, when we talk about interim coaches, I think we overrate 
the job that they do when projecting them forward as the full-time coach, right? If you're saying, does Steve Wilkes deserve credit as interim coach for writing the ship enough that the Panthers heading into week 17 are playing for a playoff spot, whether it's the Bucks' fault or not? Yeah, like there's good job by Steve Wilkes getting this thing on track because, yeah, the, the Panthers were completely off the tracks. And Matt Rule obviously didn't work out there. Wilkes been running that defense now, or, you know, specifically recently defensive coach. They've been better there creating decent enough offense. I mean, I still don't think Ben McAdoo's the best offensive coach in the world, right? You're pulling all this stuff together, right? So I think Steve Wilkes deserves credit for that. Where I struggle is when people project that forward as, well, this guy has to be the head coach going forward. He was good as an interim coach. I think those are just two different jobs, right? One is you're, you've, you've taken, you used the word program, which mostly is used in college, but you hear NFL executives do that, right? That's like a top to bottom approach, like our program. You've taken over a program that you didn't build. And all you're trying to do is keep it afloat and, or turn things around and, and show signs of life down the stretch. I think Wilkes has done a great job with that. Now, does that mean next if, if it's his program next year from start to finish, right? Off-season moves, your players, your defense, the whole thing. I, I don't know that we know enough about that coming out of the season. But I think Wilkes has done a fantastic job making the Panthers a contender when they looked like they should be battling for top three pick. I think there's also an element where, you know, if you're firing a guy midway through the season, by definition, a lot of things are wrong, you know? You don't fire a guy midway through the season if everything's going great. So changing anything probably makes an impact positively because you're, you know, you're skewing in a terrible direction. So automatically changing course is probably going to be better because what you're doing right now is a disaster. So I, I think there's an element to pretty much anybody can make this thing look better just by changing things anything doesn't even matter like go in there and randomly change five things it will probably make you better because what you're doing by very definition is getting everybody in the building fired so um i think it's probably quite easy as an interim head coach to look good simply by not being the guy that was there before and you know when you think about all the interim head coaches recently like a lot of them have had quite a lot of success and every one of them like rich basaccia whatever his name was the the raiders guy once gruden was gone it's like, wow, that guy is one of the coaches of the year. Look at the amazing job he's doing. Like, yeah, but like, look what was happening beforehand. This is a toxic environment that he comes in. He looks great. Um, I think the the late Dr. Eric Eager, late of PFF, not of the world. Still alive. Um, yep. Had some sort of post where you're saying like wins, you know, four through 10 are quite easy to attain. Like there's not an awful lot of difference between that. But what's really difficult is getting from 10 to 15 or whatever, right? I think that's kind of where you are with interim head coaches. Like you're skewing towards four wins by being terrible. Getting from four to 10 actually doesn't require that much tinkering or changing or it just involves stop being bad. And when you say easy, not, you know, to oversimplify here, it's like there's a bounce of the ball here and there. There's a lot of one possession games. In any given season, most of the teams are going to be clumped into that four to 10 win range, but there's some extra level from a team, whether it's quarterback or coach or whatever it is, that's going to get you into that double digits and beyond, right? Yeah, and that's the thing that can't simply be, you can't achieve that simply by coming in and changing five things at random that are the reason you're skewing badly. Like you actually need to figure out how to win consistently and do those things well over a period of time. And that's difficult, which is why only, you know, Belichick and Tomlin and uh, John Harbaugh can have those consistently good records every single year because that's that's not an easy thing to achieve. 
Yeah, so anyway, it'll be interesting to see what the Panthers do there. They moved to 6-9, and nine, as I mentioned. They've got a, a huge game, playoff implications against the Bucs next week. Uh, Lions fall to 7-8, and eight, and um, the entire NFC, wild card picture, everybody lost, including the Lions, the Commanders, the Giants, the Seahawks. They all lost. Except Green Bay. Except Green Bay, opening the door for the Packers, who we'll talk about in just a little bit here. Uh, the gauntlet is open. For drafting on Underdog Fantasy, it's a playoff best ball tournament with a million dollars in total prizes and a hundred thousand dollars for first place. What a prize! Over at Underdog Fantasy, just draft your team before the NFL playoffs start, and that's it. Drafting players will rack up a bunch of fantasy points and advance deep into the playoffs. Is key to this style of contest. So there's a whole strategy involved here, Sam. You're picking players who you think are going to last, and obviously players who are going to be good. So uh, it's playoff best ball over at Underdog Fantasy. If you haven't signed up for Underdog yet, use the promo code PFF, and you'll get your first deposit matched up to $100. It's Underdog Fantasy. Use that promo code PFF. All right, let's talk about those Seattle Seahawks. Uh, Chiefs 24, Seahawks 10. Uh, Chiefs moved to 12-3. and three. Another really good game for them. Uh, the Seahawks, it, really, the Seahawks couldn't get anything going offensively. This may have been the best defensive performance from the Chiefs. Uh, we always discuss the Chiefs through the lens of their offense, and they are fantastic, and they they made some plays, but they went three and out a bunch too. There were some inconsistencies there. There were some drops, and um, Seattle hung tough on the defensive side of the ball, but Geno Smith under heavy pressure throughout this game, Chris Jones dominating up front, suffocating early in the run game. You know, Seattle ended up getting theirs from a run game perspective. Kenneth Walker gets over 100 yards on 26 carries, but – Early on, Seattle could not get anything going, and I think the Chiefs' defense deserves a ton of credit for their performance in this game. Yeah, it does. Kenneth Walker had a play where he ran he ran like a mile to find the open kind of backside of a play and get into space, but he, he sort of ran so far and did so much work to get to that point. It was like by the time he finally manufactured room, he was just too tired to exploit tired. it. You know, just kind of ran out of steam and got tackled eventually. Um, but yeah, they, they got some stuff done. Uh, like it felt like it was one of those games where, you know, obviously the Chiefs score and then you're, you're immediately under pressure because there's this feeling with Kansas City that they're always going to score. So if you don't keep pace, you're in trouble. Um, and Seattle, I think, was doing the thing you do when you play Kansas City and you play aggressive and you go for fourth <coughs> downs because of that awareness that you're the underdog and they're going to score a lot and you need to keep pace. And... Like they had a batted pass on fourth and three, which is such a like such a frustrating play for an offense because it's not like they're they're just complete bad luck because obviously you know there's a skill to getting in the lane to getting your hands up if you're not going to get there with the rush and batting passes down, but it is kind of fluky you know, so when you have a play that sort of beats the coverage and is open you're going to pick up the, the fourth and three and then a dude just gets his paw up in your face and bats it down. And then all of a sudden, your fourth down is done. Your turnover on downs, it you immediately feel like, well, that's game, you know, done. But they did hang in there for longer than that, um, and I think kind of gave a good account of themselves, even if it was never in doubt. Yeah, and so again, you know, when you're when you're playing the Chiefs, you need a lot of things to go right. Nothing was going right early, other than the Chiefs, you know, kind of helping to keep the Seahawks in there. A couple big drops, you know, some of Mahomes' best throws dropped um by the way his first touchdown a little tap pass Mahomes to uh Kadarius Tony mm -hmm. that feels like an illegal addition 
to the Chiefs' offense, doesn't it? Illegal addition. Yes, uh, you get you get to you get tap passes to Kadarius Tony, so that you know, as the Chiefs' offense that's already great at creating offense and has Mahomes and Kelsey and everything. Yeah, yeah, that was it's a good move. Getting Tony whenever he's healthy, but um, so yeah, I think Mahomes was solid. They were they were fine offensively. Uh, Mahomes does the full just unbelievable knack for for just converting first downs and touchdowns as a runner goes full Superman once again barely gets the ball on the pylon just unbelievable play uh, Mahomes has just enough from a speed and agility standpoint to turn the corner right like how frustrating is that as difficult as it is to make stops against the Chiefs on first down second down a third and whatever and he's just laying out getting into the pile that, that put that was the touchdown that put them up to 24 to 10 and basically insurmountable at this point the way the Chiefs defense was playing and the Seattle offense as inconsistent as they had been yeah I mean as I say there was a thing a while ago where his I think his trainer his personal trainer or whatever was posting some workout numbers or some sort of um not, not like the NGS stuff the official uh movement track player tracking information but like some personal things that they use that essentially suggested that he runs faster in a in a curve than he does in a straight line like it was 103% or whatever of a straight line speed when he's running in a circular motion, which sounds absurd on the face of it. But the more I watch him play, the more I kind of buy it that somehow when he's running in not in a straight line, he seems to move quicker. If he's ever trying to just turn a corner, he's moving faster than he does when he's running straight. It's bizarre. Um, but his ability, to, his ability to do that consistently and also do it whilst maneuvering in a pocket and keeping his eyes in various different places is nuts. There was a play here where he had to, he kind of, it's not that he stayed in the pocket, but he, he ended up back in the pocket having left it and come back in again. He basically ran in a long arcing circle from the pocket around to the right and then back into it again, uh, evading defenders the whole way. And somehow, so he had to, while he was running this large arc, had to keep his eyes like on the rushers because there was three or four guys maneuvering in different ways trying to chase him down. But then also at the end of it, once he's kind of running his way back into the pocket, actually do something with the ball at the end of this. I don't understand how you keep your eyes in those two different places at the same time. Like one, what is the, the geometry at play here so that I can maneuver around three different guys and end up back where I started? And then two, what the hell is the route? And then the right. awareness. Of Where the are the field? players yeah. that I'm supposed to be targeting at the end of this? Because once I get to this situation, I really have no time left, and the ball needs to leave my hands now. I like, you know, there are players that are able to do the first part, and there are players that are able to do the second part. I, he might be the only guy I've ever seen that can do both at the same time and somehow make it work every single time. I've said it a few times. I remember during Kyler Murray's evaluation, I said he drops his eyes against the rush, but that's okay. Like he needs to. Like Kyler Murray drops his eyes you know, scampers about yeah. and then picks his eyes back up to see what's going on downfield. Like you're describing somehow Mahomes also knows where everybody is yeah. while he's doing that. He somehow doesn't need to like pick the eyes back up again. It's like he's got two different sets operating independently and somehow yeah. like pieces the information together while he's doing it. It's I, I don't know if I've ever seen a guy that's able to do that the way he can. Sometimes we do this during draft time. We say, okay, if you're in the AFC West, you have to beat Mahomes, right? Like the whole... You have to draft to, to beat this top team. And we, we always joke about how the Packers drafted three corners to stop Randy Moss. I feel like I was watching uh, Obo Okoronkwo last week. 
his agility as a pass rusher and ability to kind of peel off rushes and maybe help contain quarterbacks, a very specific skill. If you're a team in the AFC West or the Bills or the Bengals or a team that wants to beat the Chiefs all the time, do you start investing in these pass rushers who aren't necessarily dominant pass rushers, but you want not mirror players, not spies, but just athletic pass rushers who are going to be able to stop some of these plays? Get, you know, stop Mahomes on the edge. It's it's is it is it too specific, right? Over specification of of the role, but like, it's a big part of what makes Mahomes special. In addition to, by the way, he can beat you from the pocket as well. Yeah, I don't even know if there's a, a specific type of player that you want for that. I think it's just a very unusual way of having to rush him. Like the Bengals did a really good job of this with Trey Hendrickson, who admittedly is a very top tier athlete at the position. Yes, even if he doesn't necessarily look like it. Um, they know, know how to peel back properly into yeah, escape so routes. They did a very good job of, like, you get three-quarters of the way there to pressuring Mahomes, and then Mahomes does what he does, which is, you know, bail from the pocket, run in a circle at 103% of his straight-line speed, and all of a sudden he makes you look ridiculous. But the Bengals, and Hendrickson in particular, was very good at uh, sort of bailing on the rush 75% of the way through there and then being able to track Mahomes down when he does that and – basically just make sure he didn't have anywhere to go and at least forcing him to do something with the ball. And, you know, Sam Hubbard at the other side as well. Similar idea, right? Hubbard was a really top-tier athlete, although I think in a more specific way, more of a straight-line guy. But they did a very good job of that. So maybe you do need a pretty top-tier athlete, but also it's that unusual sort of methodology of not over-committing to the rush, but also not like you can't just stand there and not even like play contain you actually do need to try and pressure him all right so as i mentioned good stuff sam uh 12 and 3 <laughs> chiefs Just a good discussion yeah. on um, homes and all that stuff but how is travis kelsey so completely unstoppable whilst also being so completely the bedrock of all the passing game like they had 200 and yeah. something yards and, and kelsey had 113 of them. 113 out of 224 there yeah nobody else had more than 32 yards yeah yeah, and, and he had a 52-yarder in there, you know, got open on the deep crosser and like, everything. Particularly as the next two guys were running backs. Like, it, it feels like that should be a more easy thing to stop than it is. Yeah, Chiefs have, you know, multiple ways to win. I mentioned they, they should have been able to run the ball a little bit more effectively, but they run the ball well with Isaiah Pacheco. They got Pacheco and McKinnon, who are just so tough to tackle coming out of the backfield. You have Kelsey. I don't think the receivers are dynamic, but they're good enough. You know, Juju is a as a – possession type of guy justin watson had a key drop in there but are you um surprised that the seahawks wide receivers outward display of bravado by showing up to the warm-up shirtless in single single digit weather kansas city was another one of the coldest places in the country this week yeah uh didn't work no because one of the receivers is named laquan treadwell yeah so i didn't think it might work okay i didn't think it would work they also had uh legeria sneed was um traveling with DK Metcalf a lot in this game. They had a really good battle. I thought Seattle, look, Seattle falls to seven and eight. If you told me at the beginning of the season that they would have seven wins at this point, I'd say, you know, they were the worst roster in the NFL at at one point, it looked like. Um, That's pretty good. They missed Tyler Lockett, you know, who's out for the season. And you don't have that that next option. But um, no, being shirtless in uh, below zero weather. I I so don't understand the point of that. 
Because so, I mean, I don't think you're making a point. So oh, much you're as definitely you're, making a point. Part of it, it's for your own. For no, yourself. you you're are one hundred percent making a point. It's like no, I, the cold doesn't bother me. I'm badass. Whilst I have my hand warmers, you're just hyping and yourself up and balaclava. You're on. just hyping yourself up the same way you might for you know big presentation. Right? It's you're, like look, you got a big PowerPoint presentation. You're gonna hype yourself up, but they're just they have to do it in public because they have cameras on themselves all the time. If it was cold to the point where you just go out and you're like, I'm gonna be shirtless. I'm not gonna like. I have no no concern for this cold whatsoever. I'm not even gonna acknowledge it exists. I'm gonna go out there shirtless, like it was a 70 degree day, and just do my thing. Okay, fine. I can respect that. But it isn't right. It's it's not only is it colder than that. It is in fact so cold that you need to have gloves and a hat and a balaclava on to stop various parts of you freezing off and fall. You know, going getting frostbite and falling off. Oh, right? that's, that's right. you how had cold the, it is. Uh, the nipple tweet. Yeah. That's how cold it is, is that you actually need to wear protection to stop bits of your body falling off, right? At that point, who are you fooling? Like, it's cold. Put some stuff on. I think it's your own self-motive. It's, it's for yourself. You're for yourself. It's not for the cameras. It's, it's stupid. Yeah. It's what it is. All right, so uh, 24 to 10 in that game. Other, two other 1 o'clock. Yeah, other 1 o'clock games. There was a 2.02 game on Saturday as well. A 2.02 Thanks to the game. delay in Tennessee. Why was it 0-2? They started at two oh two. That was the start time. I knew they had to delay Actually, it by an hour. Yeah, because the official start times every week are one oh two. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. They pushed it back from one. They get a little extra ad break in there just before. The ad break. Seriously, it got pushed back two minutes for an ad break. Over the last couple of years, <laughs> like the official start times. It's one o'clock on the schedule, but they've really been starting at one oh two or something like the huh. last couple of years. So this is a two oh two start in Tennessee. But you gotta get every ad break in you can. I mean, this is America. They went to an ad break during the Franco Harris tribute thing. That's pretty they? rough. Yeah, they um, the NFL. I have to say though, keeps the games tight. Last 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 night's game was not, but the games are pretty tight. They got rid of the uh, the kickoff as a segment a couple years ago. That was huge, where it goes touchdown commercial, right? Kickoff kick commercial, usually a touchback commercial. They did get rid of that. I feel like the game is crisp, especially compared to college football, which just drags forever. They play four-hour games in college on the regular. All right, uh, New Orleans Saints, 17. Browns, 10. Um, Browns got up early, 10-0 in the second quarter with a 17-play, 60-yard drive. Deshaun Watson had a uh, – that was a that was for a field goal. I'm saying Deshaun Watson had a 12-yard QB sweep to kick things off, and then that was it for the Browns. The Saints came back. Taysom Hill – Alvin Kamara, a couple touchdowns there. And Browns had a chance to win. Multiple drops in the end zone, not only on the fourth quarter drive, but earlier in the game as well from Amari Cooper. And uh, Saints win with 92 passing yards from Andy Dalton. Yes. Has there been a more football thing in the NFL ever, or at least for years, than Taysom Hill running the ball in the snow and ice you know, he just needed a leather helmet, and it would have been. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And to be called, like, Bronco or Dutch, something like that. You know, if that was his name. Bronco Hill. Right. It would be the most just football thing ever. This was, this yeah, was he would vintage probably, NFL. He would probably play a little linebacker as well. Yeah, yeah, two-way player. That's what we forgot to mention during the Marcus Jones segment. Was the first player in NFL history since the 40s. Yeah. To have an offensive touchdown, a special teams touchdown, and an interception right. return for a touchdown. There were four guys that did this, and they all did it within a two-year period in 1946 to 47, which I can only assume has to be because, like, the, the 
playing stock was so depleted by World War II. The war. That yeah. everybody played everywhere. Yeah. So Marcus Jones is essentially as good as the, uh, like, he's so good that he's got records that only war replacement type players. Right. Where you had achieve. to play all three Where they had to be two-way because players. Because there were only 17 players left yeah. playing the NFL. Apologies, we missed that that nugget during the uh, Patriot segment. But Taysom Hill is a full throwback to the Bronco Nagurski, uh, you know, insert all those other players in hey, that I'm, kind of era. I mentioned it as a possibility, right? I mean, it, as far as game flow goes, it didn't look like this early, but the Saints being able to run the ball and, and Taysom Hill being a part of that, he had nine carries for 56, including the 16-yard touchdown. It was an eight-yard touchdown. Long of 16, eight-yard touchdown. But having a Taysom Hill in this type of game against a Browns defensive front that has not been good ended up being a part of the difference. It, again, this would be one of your throw-it-out games. You know, if you cared about QB evaluation, if this was Baker Mayfield, you'd say, ah, throw it out. Tough game. But um, you got to win these games if you're a Browns quarterback. you got to win these games in, in this type of weather. It did look like they were playing. Of all the weather games, this was the worst, right? It had the lowest had spread wind. in history. Yeah. Had wind. Kind of looked like they were playing on an ice skating rink for a bunch of it, too. Yeah, well, it, yeah. Cold, um, snowy slash ice, and then wind as well. Like, it was full. This was, this was a full weather game. Uh, it was also such a sort of full weather game – you know, terrible conditions, et cetera, that the Browns, you know, this is going to be a Taysom Hill, Bronco Nagurski throwback game. What do we do? Well, you bring in Reggie Ragland, you know, just full <laughs> situational run-stuffing linebacker to come in. You know, you're going to be our, you're going to be our full-time Sam linebacker that doesn't really exist in today's NFL anymore. We need you. Like, now's the time. Sound the Reggie Ragland trumpet. He's going to be playing 33 snaps in this game. That's how we're going to roll. I love when you pull up the good stuff. I don't have much else on this game. Both teams are six and nine. There's other stuff to talk about. There's other stuff to talk about. Yeah, that's it. Browns dropped two touchdowns, potential touchdowns on the uh, on the what, what, what would have been the game ending or game tying drive. I mean, it was so it was so weirdly fitting that um, like the, the what would have been the kind of miracle game was game tying game winning touchdown ends up being an absurdly difficult catch by Donovan Peoples-Jones in the back of the end zone. Like, that's what he does. He only makes those catches, and well, he didn't come up with it. You also have David Njoku dropping one when this exact score, right, 17-10 to 10 a few weeks back against the Bucks, it was fourth and nine or fourth and whatever, and Njoku goes up and makes the one-handed catch to tie it, mm. get the Browns into overtime, and they eventually win it. It makes me think Njoku likes Jacoby Brissett better. Joku likes Jacoby Brissett. Better. Yeah, he made the catch for Jacoby Brissett. Didn't do it for Watson. Okay. Um, anyway, ugly game. This was really decided by that, um, like tipped interception from Watson sets the Saints up in like an insta insta red zone type of thing in a game where offense is not the most abundant thing. Yes. And all of a sudden, you know, now it's it's not insurmountable, but now you're in a hole. Both teams six and nine. Let's go to some more Minnesota Vikings crazy. Mm. They win again, 27-24. to 24. Another fourth-quarter dramatic game-winning drive for the Vikings. They move to 12-3. and three. Giants fall to 8-6-1. They now have 11 one-score victory uh, games this year, which is a record with two games still to go. Um, they, they're underdogs. They're three-and-a-half point or two-and-a-half point underdogs against the Green Bay Packers this week, which is crazy. The 12-3. 
Minnesota Vikings that have had this division wrapped up for like a month are underdogs against the quote-unquote charging Green Bay Packers who are still an underdog to make the playoffs, uh, which is kind of wild. They have by far the worst points differential of any 12-3 and team in NFL history. Um, and I'm not even – so I think this is different. Because remember, this was kind of the Giants earlier in the season, right? The Giants had this incredibly good record, and it's like, they kind of suck, though. And even though they're probably going to make the playoffs just because of the start they've had, like, I think we can all admit they're not good, you know, even though they're rec- – like, I don't think it's as simple as the Vikings just aren't good because there's a lot of really good things about this team. Like, Kirk Cousins to Justin Jefferson appears to be basically unstoppable. Um, the offense has shown that no deficit is too great for them to keep rolling – the defense stinks, but it has multiple, like, all-pro caliber players on it. Like, Zadarius Smith, at least heading into this week, still led the league in pressures. Danielle Hunter is being used a little bit better and I think is having more of an impact recently. Patrick Peterson, although he's campaigning for an all-pro spot, maybe that's a little bit rich, but is playing his best season in years. Um, Harrison Smith is still a good player. There's a lot to like about this defense. It just collectively doesn't do a great job overall. And then they just play these weird games where there's no logic to it. It doesn't make any sense. Like early in this one, it looked like they would run away with this game and win by multiple scores. And then they kept finding ways for that not to happen and then just keep pulling the iron out of the fire anyway and win. Yeah, so in the end, um, Vikings were up 24-16 to 16 into the fourth quarter. It was um, kind of a lull in the middle where there's a whole bunch of not a ton of scoring, but the the nice pass for Kirk Cousins to TJ Hawkinson for a touchdown to go up 17-13. to Giants come back with a field goal to make it 17-16. Vikings come back with their own touchdown to Justin Jefferson. Like, it kept looking like the Vikings were going to put this thing away, right? So they get up eight. Nice Cousins to Jefferson connection, as you mentioned. They've been just unstoppable. Um, but the Giants, with two minutes left, go for it on, I think it was fourth and two. Saquon Park- Barkley sprints through the defense for a touchdown and the Giants get the two-point conversion so it's 24-24 and it doesn't matter man the Vikings come back and it was another the Cousins to Jefferson connection I keep I say I feel like I say it every week but it's like when Cousins knows he's going to get hit he has such confidence to throw the ball before the break and it is it is massive man I mean um, Chris was mentioning this on the broadcast on one of uh, Tom Brady's interceptions last night where he just seemed late to Mike Evans. Like, they were just lacking the confidence to throw the ball early for whatever reason, right? And it's Brady and Evans who had had a lot of success together. Cousins and Jefferson right now are the opposite, right? Cousins, whether it's deep comebacks, deep outs, this was an out from the slot, and on that game-winning drive where Cousins just throws the ball so early out of his break, and Jefferson gets there, right? He's such a good route runner. He knows how to get to the spot. And um, then it was a Jefferson screen pass that gets them into field goal range. And then the other part too, man, is just the you know kicker expectations, right? Like when when kickers used to line up for a sixty yard kick, you you'd first check to see if it was in Denver, right? <laughs> if it's in Denver, this is doable, yeah. right? Jason Elam's lining up for sixty three yard, a new NFL record. We're in Denver though, you know, that adds five yards. And then you check to see is it in a dome, right? And this is a dome, but is it in a dome? Is this doable? But we're seeing more kickers actually be able to hit 55 plus yarders 60 plus yarders at such a ridiculous rate it does change the geometry and it changes a lot of 
your late game decisions. I'm not saying in this in particular, but when you talk about teams, uh, you know, within game winning field goal situations, the Vikings just had to move 33 yards and it took basically two big passes to Justin Jefferson, right? Deep out and a screen pass and you're in position 61 yarder and the rest is history. Vikings moved to 12 and three. Yeah. I mean, the, the Giants scored with basically two minutes left um, to, to tie it up, right? And then Minnesota doesn't get a ton going early in that drive, sort of stalls. And then they get that one decent play to Justin Jefferson, which all of a sudden is taking you down. you got to quickly hustle up, spike the ball with five seconds left on the clock. And now you're like, oh, now we're at the Giants' 42-yard line. It's like right on the edge of where you would even think about going for it in terms of, like, is, it, is, is this a Hail Mary is shot? It a Hail Mary or a field goal. Or a yeah. field goal. You know, or what? Like, so it's like, uh, like they they're going for the sixty-one yarder. Like, there, are, I don't know how many kickers are in the NFL where you would even take that shot. Like, who? How many kickers have a sixty-one yarder in them? You know, it's not. It's more than it used to be, but it isn't that big a number. Um, and then the Vi- you know, the Vikings obviously go for it and get the get the kick, which is perfect, by the way. Like right down the middle, had another couple of yards on it. That was good from sixty-three, sixty-four, maybe. Just an in- insane. Um, insane like end to this game the Justin Jefferson thing right breaks Randy Moss's single season receiving record in this game for the Vikings like like there are there are teams in the NFL where some of their receiver records are terrible like a joke they just have never had good receivers ever and they don't have like any record is broken is is you're sort of left wondering like how is that still the record uh Minnesota though this is a team that's had multiple Hall of Fame receivers, multiple like time All Pro receivers, even beyond the Hall of Famers. Like this, almost sequentially went from like Anthony Carter to Chris Carter to Randy Moss. It's an insane run of receivers the Vikings have had. So Jefferson breaks Randy Moss's single season record. He's on pace to break Calvin Johnson's single season record NFL all time, albeit with an extra game. And he needs, what is it, 244 yards in the final two games to break 2,000 for the season. Oh, the first start. receiver. Don't start. To get over 2,000. You got to do it this week. You got to do it this week. Yeah. Okay. You got to do it this week. Yeah. Just You're like, going to have to get over the fact that there's an extra game in the schedule now. No, I think you need to preface it every single time. No, but that's not going to Because it's not the same thing. It's not apples to apples. Yeah, and yet here we are trucking forward anyway. You have an extra game. You have an extra opportunity. Yes. Um, by the way, I think this is this is a game. TJ Hawkinson um, had the two touchdowns. He was wide open on the first one, but really nice catch on the second one. Incredible catch in the second one. 13 catches for 109 yards. And, you know, Adam Thielen, it used to be just Jefferson and Thielen, right? Or, or Diggs and Thielen, right? This is one of those games where the Hawkinson trade comes in and it's like, okay, you've given um, – Quasi's move here to, to trade for Hawkinson. You've given this offense a third option. It hasn't, you know, it hasn't paid off every single game since Hawkinson's there, but there are individual games here and there. When he first got there back in week nine, this game, there's certain games where it's like, all right, it's really nice that you have that option right now. And that might have been the difference in this one. You, know, you scored the two touchdowns and everything. And of course, that's a big part of the difference, but it's such a key part of this offense to have another option there. Um, the last thing I'll say, because you said, like, the Vikings are good. They're 12-3. and three. You got the the weird stuff with the point differential or whatever. But isn't there this element of, like, with, when you're facing the Chiefs, 
and you make a couple stops and you get to third down and then Mahomes just kind of breaks your heart. And it only takes one play sometimes. Don't the Vikings have elements of that? Like in that comeback against the Colts a couple weeks ago and in this comeback, if you're the defense, you're like, all right, we got the sack or all right, we, we got to third down or whatever it was. But there's just that one play. Right, they they have that knack for making that one big play, and it got, I think you have to credit Cousins for that. I think you got to credit Justin Jefferson usually for that. They make that one play, and I think that's part of the late game variance that they're embracing, or what, whatever it is. They're making that one big play, two big plays to get in position for all of these wins. I think it's also that's why they're dangerous, is because as much as that defense is bad overall the good players that we talked about, in addition to some other like talented but inconsistent players, are capable of making that one play that can change the game and steal it for you. Like, okay, they relied on it. They needed a 61-yard field goal to win this game. They also needed like a great uh, force fumble and recovery from linebacker Brian Asamoah. Otherwise, they're not even in that position. You know what I mean? So that was an incredible play where he just decides after a catch and run, you know what, I'm just going to take the ball away. Like, this is our ball now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strip it from you, and then I'm going to recover it. Mine. Um, Danelle, or yeah, Danelle Hunter had three sacks, seven pressures. Darius Smith had his, you know, didn't get the sacks, but had a bunch of pressure as well. They are capable of dialing up that one play in key situations. And that, that to me, is what's going to be the thing that determines if this team can go on a run in the playoffs rather than just show up is, you know, can the defense time they're good plays for key high leverage situations because if they make, you know, a big sack on first down might not make any difference, you know, because they're, they're so bad that they can still give up a first and 27 and the opposition keeps going and scores. But if they can time their big plays for like key third down situations and just get the opposition off the field a few times, that offense is good enough to score points and cause problems for pretty much anybody. Uh, from a Giants perspective, I thought Daniel Jones was solid. And then even more so when you look at the fact that he's throwing to Richie James, Isaiah Hodgins. Yeah, a right? couple of uh, Danny Dimes. Danny yeah. Dimes re-showed up. Like a couple of absolute uh, really nice passes. Um, By I, the way, like uh, campaigner, you know, oh, I need to be an all-pro corner, Patrick Peterson, who was snubbed for the Pro Bowl, by the way. So they were like asking him, you know, Pro Bowl snub. He's like, yeah, well, hopefully the all-pro voters make the right decision. Like, he got toasted on a double move for one of those Danny Dimes plays. Like, you know. And that, and to this all-pro voter, that did not look like a, uh, an all-pro type of play. Well, that play certainly wasn't. You needed to finish with that. Like the old school. But to this all-pro voter, no. to this reporter, that did not look like an all-pro type look, of play. Everybody gets beat. I'm just saying that that was bad. Yeah. Um, nothing against Richie James or Isaiah Hodgins. I mean, Hodgins was good in college. And James, like – just a fascinating player that's taken this long to kind of become a, a key part of an offense. It, it's tough when those guys and Darius Slayton are your tough option are your top options. They could use a guy like a Kenny Galladay or something, you know, like a number one mm, receiver. Right. But um, the, the Daniel Jones evaluation continues to just get more and more interesting because you could easily make the excuse that you know he's he's not that the offense is great, but he's elevating some of these guys into uh decent players here giants still in the mix here eight six and one they got to win some games though to uh, solidify that playoff spot in the nfc all right we got to touch we're, we're moving slowly as always mm. a couple games we got to touch on at least quickly uh baltimore ravens 17 atlanta falcons nine second start for desmond ritter not going so hot right now for ritter um ravens get the win with tyler huntley who's some somehow a pro bowl alternate don't get on a rant don't do it 
a stupid thing. How is he a Pro Bowl alternate? Well, he's the fourth Pro Bowl alternate. How's that silly. even a story? That means he's QB seven. Yeah, in the AFC. In the AFC. Like Jacoby Brissett should be going over him as an alternate. I mean, almost literally anybody should be going, but whatever. All right, end it. Um, Ravens run for 184 again. You get the the Gus Bus and J.K. Dobbins uh, moving the ball well. But another game where the Ravens' defense comes correct. Now, again, how much of that is going up against third-round rookie quarterback? But Ravens' defense looking good here down the stretch. Yeah, it did. Um I don't know. What do you make of Des- Desmond Ritter so far? Because I don't think he's been as bad as his grade suggests. He's also been in some pretty rough situations game flow-wise. Yeah, I think there's just been some – I mean, there was like a bad underthrow in there. Where the weather the weather is a thing. Sure. Going up against the Ravens is a thing. Drake London keeps fumbling every time he makes a good pass, which he doesn't help. He took his sleeves off now, so yeah. he should be good. Took his sleeves off in the cold so he didn't fumble. Again. I think Ritter's been – it was kind of like his preseason stuff. Right, because you know we follow people on Twitter who break down the film, and they're like, "Hey, look at this great thing by Ritter. Look at this great thing by Ritter," and it's like, "Yes," but the two worst things he that he did were really bad. Well, wasn't those... that also him in college? It's like the yeah. the baseline actually looks really good. Like it's efficient. It's uh, when he's accurate, he's deadly accurate. All this looks really, really good. But then, ooh, ooh, what's that? That's not good. It's like he would just punctuate what is an otherwise very high baseline of play with these really horrendous plays. And even, um, it's so people were, a lot of people were critical about his accuracy, but it's like the baseline accuracy was insanely good. When he was hitting a guy accurately, he was hitting him perfectly in his hands, in the right location, dead on. But then when he missed, like he missed by a mile. And it's like, well, how do those two, how are those the same people? Well, that's why I always say you judge accuracy different ways, right? You, there's one, do you throw a catchable pass, right? A pass that should be caught and essentially avoid bad misses. And then second, do you throw catch and run opportunities, have those precision passes and all that stuff? Lamar was always like that, right? Where if you if you were a Lamar supporter, you would be like, oh, he's not accurate? Watch these throws, right? These are perfect. But then you would just say, as a percentage, he misses more throws than everyone else, right? That's kind of where Ritter is, I think, at this point. Um, didn't have the disastrous plays in this. And I also think, like, the timing and rhythm, and there's a lot to like about it. Yeah, and it's very Kenny Pickett-ish to me so far. By the way, Drake London ends up with a really good game despite the fumble, which I think sort of are a really good grade despite the fumble, which I think shows how good the rest of his game was. Like, he made an absolutely absurd sideline catch where he plucks the ball out of the air with his fingertips you know, gets one foot down, and then I think got an elbow down or something to to get the rest of him in before he went uh, out of bounds. Like, crazy catch. He, I think he's been a very good player for them, and just the fumbles the last couple of weeks have been really major negative plays that have cost them. But I think that he will be a very good player for them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, I don't think there's enough. I mean, is the Kenny Pickett thing fair so far for Ritter? The grades are going to be different, but like early in the season Pickett where it's like, I don't think there's anything spectacular, but there's some just general decent running of the offense that's not showing up on the scoreboard yet or any of that stuff, but you just you see some positive things. I mean, it feels like a third-round player. Roquan so Smith had another great game. That guy's grade is like 35 points better in Baltimore than it was early in the season in Chicago. I mean, he's... He's made a massive difference to this defense. Uh, the defense has made a massive difference to him um, because he's not surrounded by a bunch of terrible players anymore. That's starting to look like one of the better deals that's been made, albeit 
one that's going to come with a giant price tag attached to it. Um, Huntley was was fine in this game. Did a little bit in the run game, and you know, nine for seventeen for a buck fifteen. Right, cold weather game. You you keep it close. Um, that's uh, that's fourth alternate Pro Bowl play right there. Yeah, yeah perfect. They flexed the Ravens Steelers game into Sunday Night Football. I don't know if they're doing that on the back of knowledge that Lamar Jackson's coming back or what. Usually, you flex games that you know are going to be good and exciting and attractive. But we'll see. You know, the Ravens keeping afloat at ten and five. At worst, they're probably going to be the five seed in the AFC. And um, at best, there's still a chance that they could uh, that they could catch the Bengals, including playing the Bengals in the last week of the season. The offensive lines in this game combined gave up four pressures. Yeah, nobody's getting any kind of pass rush. Yeah, you just get a run heavy, run heavy approach from both teams. So, all right, that's it. That's all I got on that. Okay. Next. I've had enough of this game. Falcons fall to five and ten. And their offseason decision of do they draft a quarterback in the top ten versus giving Desmond Ritter some time, we'll have we'll have some time to discuss that. The the uh, the the 202 game here, the uh, Houston Texans get their second win of the season, winning 19 to 14 over the Tennessee Titans. It's a couple weeks in a row now. The Titans playing tough against Dallas, tough against Kansas City, beat Texans. the Titans. The Texans, yeah, yeah. Don't correct me. Okay. Unless I'm wrong. Fine. No, I appreciate it. You, you needed to call me out. The uh, the Texans are playing hard right now. They're playing great. 2-12-1. Uh, but they get their second win of the season. Malik Willis got the start for the Titans, and it did not go so hot. No. 14 of 23 for just 99 yards, two picks. And I would say the grade in the stats were uh, reflective of each other. Also looked like Derrick Henry was just going to go off again. He was held to just 126 <laughs> just, in this game. Just 126. Derek, the, the Texans held Derrick Henry to about 80 yards below his recent average against the Texans. That's one perspective yeah. of how the, uh, the Texans' defense did against Derrick Henry. It also felt like, you know, they, the Titans get the ball back late in the game, you know, game-winning drive time. It genuinely felt like they would have been better off trying to win a game-winning drive by handing the ball off to Derrick Henry, or at least alternating, handing the ball off to Derrick Henry versus quarterback keeper on the option with Malik Willis than they were by trying to have Malik Willis operate an actual NFL passing offense in the two-minute drill trying to win the game like that as soon as you were put in that obvious must-pass situation it's like oh this is not happening yeah that they had no chance at the end there um it's starting to make me think too you know we I didn't know what to do with Malik Willis at draft time. I just assumed every team wanted to take their quarterbacks in the first round. Was the NFL wrong in their sorting of last year's quarterback class, right? Willis, definitely incredible athlete, but from the preseason all the way on, it was like cannon for an arm. We see that every now and again. The quarterback stuff just isn't there at the moment. Desmond Ritter, up and down, having his struggles. The fact that Ritter went in the third and Willis in the third, like these guys went way later than expected it seems like the nfl's evaluations were right wasn't it and they just weren't overdrafting quarterbacks last year yeah i mean this was this quarterback class looks to be about as bad as everybody thought it was like kenny pickett there were a lot of people that said i hate all the quarterbacks in this class kenny pickett is the only one that has any kind of shot of working out and looking at them it's like all right kenny pickett i guess has a shot but it doesn't exactly look amazing. It's, it's fine so far, but we're talking about a pretty big leap he needs to make to be a starting quarterback going forward for any 
you know, right now there isn't a material difference between Kenny Pickett and Mitch Trubisky at quarterback, right? Which probably says it all. Um, not that he can't get better than that, but that's where he is right now. So the overall sentiment of these quarterbacks all stink and this guy might maybe work out looks pretty much dead on. So, I mean, we just assumed that because of the recent run of toolsy quarterbacks all working out and the sort of special that they can add to the table, and we'll talk about this on Wednesday a little bit in response to some, some questions, the potential of what Malik Willis could be with that tool set is worth gambling with the first-round pick on. The NFL apparently went, no, it really isn't because the chances of him actually becoming that guy are really small. And so far, they look like they're right. Yeah, so the Titans, as we mentioned earlier in the show, hours ago, Titans and Jags are headed to a Week 18 battle here. Showdown. Um, is Tannehill trying to come back for that, or is he definitely done? I think I heard him trying to come back for that, yeah. That he's having ankle game. surgery. Yeah. That is, you know, they're hopeful that he'll come back. Obviously, this week, so the, the Titans have a short week this week. They play Dallas at home Thursday night. Then they get the extended break, which is weird at this time of the year, right? In the usually don't have it's like your Thursday night game or another Thursday night game for the Titans in their case, um, and then have this extended break going into Week 18, but they do. So they're hoping to get Tannehill back for the game against the the Jaguars. It's basically Michigan Ohio State. It's the game. The this game is the opposite of the one before, where the offensive lines combined gave up 20 pressures, despite you know at least one of the teams not wanting to pass the ball much. No, Obo Okoronkwo, huge game again. For the Texans. That guy's yeah. like gone from. Why is he not worked out as a bigger role, having been an impressive situational player? So the last few weeks, the dude's been on fire. At seven pressures in this game, a 90 pass rushing grade. Looks he's, he is a free agent, right? Like just in time to hype up my uh, my free agent takes on Oboe. By the way, I mean I, I had all these notes that I didn't get to in the Ravens game. My biggest note: <laughs> stop revisiting old games. This is important. The great Morgan Moses, the great, currently on pace for a uh, career high grade. Hmm. Uh, Morgan Moses, the right tackle. For the Baltimore Ravens. Akaronko had seven pressures in 19 pass rushes. That's oh, a pretty yeah. high rate. Yeah, That's Dennis 47% Daly was, win rate. Dennis Daly was having some struggles with Oboe. All right, I've had enough of that game. That's all. It's, uh, that was, uh, what is it? My Cousin Vinny. I'm done with you. Yeah. I'm I got done no with more, this one. I got no more use for this guy. Yeah. All right, that's me in these, uh, these late season games. All right, let's go to the 4 o'clocks on Christmas Eve. Now Santa, you know, Santa's getting the sleigh going and everything. We're starting to get ready mm. to travel. Uh, San Francisco 49ers 37, Washington Commanders 20. Uh, another game that was fun back and forth early on, but the Niners pull away late because, man, their defense is just too good. Um, they found the, the scoreboard, of course, with Ray Ray McLeod running for a 71-yard touchdown to kick things off. Mm. He led the uh, – he had 71 yards, and McCaffrey only had 46 on 15 carries. Uh, the Brock Purdy show carries on. 10.6 yards per attempt. Kittle was the... Dude, Kittle's so good. Kittle and Ayuk, really, the two the two big guys this week. 120 I, yards for Kittle, 81 for Ayuk, and that was, that was the 49ers offense. Every time you see these games from George Kittle, I just keep wondering, like, why, why when everybody's healthy do we not lean on Kittle still? Why does he only, why does he only get folk, uh, featured when... They're missing players. It's like, oh, I guess we got to turn to George Kittle now. Oh, look, he's just going to run through the whole defense when the ball's in his hands. We should maybe do that more. There's, there's three very distinct 
elite tight ends of this era, mm. right? Gronk, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. And Kittle's the only one that has to kind of take a backseat in his own offense. That's what I was going to say. So there's three elite tight ends, and they're all in completely different situations, where Gronk was not only a run game weapon as a run blocker, but the Patriots and the Bucks moved him around and took advantage of his skills as a receiver, right? He did it all, out wide, slot, backfield, all that stuff. Then you have Kelsey, who's basically a glorified receiver. They don't want him blocking, but he's as uncoverable as any quote-unquote tight end in NFL history. Unbelievable yards after the catch guy. Unbelievable route runner. All of it's great. And then you have Kittle, who has Gronkish skills, mm-hmm. some Kelsey skills, right? It's kind of a combination of the two. Not really as powerful is. as Gronk. Not as good as Kelsey as a route runner and all that stuff, but the combination is as good, I think, as those guys. And he's in an offense who's like, oh, you play the Y. You're the tight end. You just just go play tight end, right? There's no real special accommodations for George Kittle. You know, we're going to line you up wide. We're going to put a linebacker on you. We're going to move you around or anything. It's just when you're open, we'll give it to you. And then, by the way, when you're open, you're going to weave through the defense or you know, moss somebody at the catch point, whatever it is. So, look, Kittle hasn't played at that same Kelsey level, I don't think, the last couple of years. And he hasn't had the sustained success of a Gronk or whatever. But I think he's in that elite tight end conversation in an offense that doesn't feature him. But every now and again, like you're saying, you're reminded Kittle feels like a guy who could be going for a buck 50 every single week if the Niners really wanted to. Yeah. I mean, if Kittle was, was as important to this offense as Kelsey is to the Chiefs, his numbers would be astronomical we've already seen what happens like a couple of years ago where he had that one giant dominant season where he was the focus of the offense like this could be Kittle every single week it just isn't because most of the time they're leaning on Debo Samuel or Christian McCaffrey or Brandon Ayuk or somebody that isn't George Kittle but when he does this like he caught the one of the touchdowns he caught it and you saw there was a little bit of space in front you're like oh he's gone like they're not stopping him and he just turns on the Jets and his acceleration for a dude that size is insane um, but then it's also worth, you know, like his, the other touchdown, like that was a coverage bust so bad that the entire right side of the route combination was open to the point where they almost competed for the pass. Like, was it Ray Ray McLeod had to be like, okay, I guess that's Kittle's ball. I'm not going to try and take it away from him in the end zone, but had he wanted to, the two targets could have had a contested catch between themselves. All right. So as far as this game goes, Taylor Heineke ends up getting, I don't know if it's benched, replaced by Carson Wentz. They mixed it up. Yeah. Is it just a benching? I See, this is just... Or was it like, hey, spark, spark plug? I suspect they've probably well, benched plug Holly go back to Carson Wentz. But like, isn't, this is why I was so annoyed at the concept of, well, what is it Taylor Heineke is bringing to you that, that leads you to go with him going forward? Oh, he just wins. He's a winner. He's winning games. It's like, okay, but if he's not powering the wins, then what happens when he stops winning? Well, we'll just go back to Carson, I guess. It's like there's no process here. It's just, oh, well, I guess the one magic pony we had has run out of gas, so let's turn to the next one. Like Heineke early in the game does what Heineke does, throws up a YOLO ball, and like Dotson actually maneuvers his way to the point where he should have caught it and then didn't come up with it. Like This is all based off random-ass luck. Like He's going to go out there, close his eyes, spin the roulette wheel, and just heave the ball downfield. And what happens, happens. Sometimes it'll work out in your favor, sometimes it won't. But that's Taylor Heineke, right? That is what you're signing up for. So if you're not going to articulate that as a reason to have him as your starting quarterback, then what you're saying is if we just catch a bad end of this working out, we're just going to make a switch at quarterback. Like that's, that's, not, 
that's I don't know what that is, but it's not good process. The numbers basically bear that out, right? I mean, in this game, there was a couple really nice tight window throws, a couple big-time throws. He's had two big-time throws per week the last three weeks. But dating back to his Eagles win on Monday Night Football, he had a 71 passing grade. That was his best game of the year, Heineke. Since that point, passing grades for Heineke, 57, 56, 49, 58, 57. Like, nothing's really changed right? over these, uh, these last few weeks. There's, there's what, three, three wins in there. In those 50s. Remember I said he's got to be the all-time leader in wins as a 50-something graded quarterback. Yeah. And um, they just they just haven't won the last couple weeks. And uh, against the Giants and then against the Niners. The Niners have a great defense, right? I mean, there's sure. only so much you can do. But it'll be interesting here if um, if the commanders decide to go back to, to Carson Wentz. He made a few nice throws, whatever. He was he was fine in uh, in garbage time, 12 of 16 for, for 123. But um, the best thing that Heineke had done to this point was give Terry McLaurin and Jahan Dotson when he's in there just opportunities to make those big plays, um, and you just kind of deal with some of the uh, some of the variance. But yeah, when the variance goes the other way, it can be ugly. Um, and it didn't even completely only only had the one interception in this one. Easily could have been three. We got the uh, the season debut from Chase Young. He he did completed play, yeah. his comeback. Played really well actually as well. Yeah. Um, he got a pressure against Trent Williams, which is not something a lot of players are going to do. Um, batted pass in there. Yeah, he got a batted pass. In fact, he got two pressures or not two pressures, two uh, wins against Trent Williams. Both of which, again, it's like when you watch Chase Young tape from before he got hurt, it's all that inside move like it's all his inside counter he hasn't I don't know why for a guy as talented as he is but his his outside speed move doesn't actually seem to function at the NFL level yet um but his inside counter is is still really legit it's just that if ever if he goes up against offensive linemen that you know start to play to that and don't respect the outside move he's not winning so he beat Trent Williams twice with that inside move now he needs to show that he's he can do that outside thing and become that you know, complete elite player that he was in college. Like the dude was arguably better than Nick Bosa and Joey Bosa coming out of that Ohio State uh, defense. But I've never actually looked into how bad the injury was. I'm not sure it's ever been fully documented, but it sounds like it was worse than the sort of standard, oh, it's just a knee injury. Like he was bad. I mean, there was rumors of him coming back early in the season and just kept kept getting pushed back. Yeah, but I think that's because they were always – unfounded assuming it was just a fairly routine knee injury but actually it was a much more serious problem than that so for him to get back out in the field and start making plays against an elite left tackle like Trent Williams is a fantastic uh, development for Washington supposedly he was was supposed to be on a on a snap count of uh, 15 to 20 he ends up at 30 so you know that was good it was great to see Chase Young out there we always compare Young to the Bosa's as you just did Nick Bosa with another huge game two sacks eight total pressures um, furthering his Defensive player of the year case. And the Brock Purdy thing keeps on trucking. Yep, and Purdy was good again. You know, it's another one of those, like, whether it's Geno Smith or any quarterback that you didn't expect to be good that is good. You're waiting for it to fall apart. And I think I'm most impressed with Purdy. He might take a a sack or, you know, it's, it's second and long or third and long, and he keeps making the right plays, man. He's just getting the ball to where it needs to be and letting Kittle and Ayuk and those guys do the work, so... Good job by Kyle Shanahan once again. Good job by Brock Purdy. Yeah, I mean, he got an interception in this one, but it was one that, like, hit his receiver in the hands, you know, deflected up into being turned over. But if he's careful with the football, they – like, this offense is incredibly difficult to stop. I mean, we 
this was the logic of whoever ends up in this offense last year will be rookie of the year if they start because it's a cheat code. Like the system is insane. And the system now has been bolstered with the likes of Christian McCaffrey. And like they're, they're so good across the board everywhere, it potentially except quarterback. But now the, like at that point, the quarterback doesn't need to do anything other than not, not screw it up. Like it's the classic game, man. It's a game manager's dream. So if Purdy just doesn't do anything careless with the ball, and is able to execute the offense, which apparently he is at a pretty high level. Like his reads are on point. He's making good decisions. He's going where he should do, where he should with the ball. If he has that kind of game, I mean, the 49ers genuinely are one of the most um, imposing teams in the NFL. Like they are absolutely for real in the NFC. All right, the other four o'clock game, Christmas Eve, Dallas Cowboys 40, Philadelphia Eagles 34. Fun little game here, Sam. Um, Dak Prescott starts early on with a pick six. Great play by Josh Sweat, but I think it was just a really bad throw. He just like lofted it right to the defensive end. Yeah. You have to do something to get the ball around. I am a huge fan of the of just essentially edge defender interceptions, right? Yeah. Like the ball's at point blank range and you have the hand-eye coordination and the athleticism to pick them off. And most of them are incredibly impressive. Not taking anything away from Josh Sweat, but this was just a bad yeah. throw by Dak. There is a spectrum of like how good was that play from the defensive end. This was a good play. It wasn't a great play because the ball was that, you know. I'm not, and I'm not trying to sound petty or picky. You just you see those passes like where T.J. Watt should just bat it down and he yeah. just catches it. Somehow it just sticks in his hands. So that was the start for Dallas. The Eagles get up ten nothing. Gardner Minshew flips the field early with a bomb to uh, or deep pass to A.J. Brown. And it's like, all right, same old Eagles. They're up 10 nothing and all Over that stuff. Over Diggs, right? Over Diggs, yeah. 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 Whoops, Diggs. Um, and it's like, all right, not completely all the Eagles are the same team with Minshew as they are Hurts, but it was like, all right, they're 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 the same team. They're still the, the better all-around team. But Dak bounced back, and Dallas's offense absolutely carved up the Eagles' zone-heavy attack. 40 to 34, they kept putting points on the board. It was a great back-and-forth game. Minshew held his own. And you saw the explosiveness of the Eagles' offense is still there. Mm-hmm. You don't have the run game uh, addition, uh, you know, from the quarterback, right? So you, they struggled on the ground a little bit, but um, just a really good back and forth game. Yeah, like so, Dallas obviously puts themselves in a hole early, but then answered with a 14-play drive to show that okay, they can still, you know, this is still a very live game, even though they they got behind in a hurry. Um, like their offense. I think looks pretty good, particularly given the competition they were going up against. I think Minshew looked good. Minshew played well. Um, they got unlucky, I think, with turnovers, particularly Minshew, who Quez Watkins twice was pretty much just owned physically at the catch point. The second one, he just allowed a really good play from uh, Durant Bland to, to get by him, just steal the ball away from him. The, the first one, the first one, the guy, who was it? Um, J. Ron Kerr? Yeah went basically through him to get the interception with the one-handed interception right really great play by curse i was kind of surprised that there wasn't more of a outraged appeal for a pass interference because he did definitely get there early and he went right through the back of quez watkins now i will also say that that's the kind of play that happens all the time in the nfl and also doesn't get called and it's absolutely a kind of play where quez watkins cannot be that weak like one of the sort of cardinal sins as a wide receiver is you cannot allow a DB to go through your space to get to the football. Like, you have to be stronger than that, even if 
He does it before the ball arrives. Like, he just can't be that weak at the catch point. So Minshew put the ball in the air twice, two Quez Watkins, in a way that should absolutely have been expecting Quez Watkins to come up with them. And twice, Watkins just got dominated physically, and they end up in interceptions both times. They were both great plays by Dallas defenders, but they were also both really bad plays by Watkins. Yeah, so uh, and Watkins is one of those speed receivers. Yeah, who just you know, he gets behind the defense, and you're like, you know, Steve loves that, right? Steve, I love <laughs> Steve loves that speed receiver guy. But we always talk about like, what's the difference in this four two something guy versus this four two something guy? And sometimes it's just play strength, and you know, it does come back to bite you sometimes. Um, I just got, I just want to credit the Cowboys, right? Even without Jalen Hurts out there, the Eagles' offense was very much the same. It was you know, Deontay Smith, uh, Devontae Smith got his, and AJ Brown, they. They create explosive offense in Philly mm-hmm. um, through the pass game. They did a great job there. But Dallas kept bouncing back, right? C.D. Lamb, uncoverable for much of the game. Of course, the play of the game was to T.Y. Hilton. 52 yards. Made a big impact. On third and third. He also drew an illegal contact penalty from Darius Slay early in the game where he just he just beat him on the route, and Slay had to basically tackle him to stop him breaking outside. Like, T.Y. Hilton, the sort of throwaway addition – um, as everybody was focusing on OBJ, I mean, first game against a legit defense made two really big plays. That like that's an impact, the real impact. This was the first time the Eagles' defense really looked this bad this year, right? Uh, Jonathan Gannon's the defensive coordinator. We we talked a lot early last year. Gannon had taken over. It looked like the softest zone coverage you've ever seen in your life. Everybody was completing eighty percent of their passes, and they slowly got better as the year went on last year. And then this year, it's like, man, this is the best Eagles coverage unit they've had since 2017, right? They they mesh their annually great pass rush with their coverage concepts extremely well. Um, and that was, you know, there was many things that have separated the Eagles this year and made them 13-1 and one going into this game, run game, pass game, all this stuff. But their, their defense as a whole and the way they had played as a unit – and adding James Bradbury in the offseason to pair with Darius Slay and all that stuff had worked so well. Just throw it all out the window in this one. Yeah, Dallas although torched them. They did, but it's also sometimes it's the bounce of a ball and turnovers. Like the Eagles had, they got a strip sack, uh, balls fumbled, and the ball like lands under Linval Joseph. And then Tyler Biadish, the center for the Cowboys, just decides I'm going to take it away from him on the ground. Like, big Linval threw all 900 pounds on top of this football, and Biadish just dives in there, rips it away from him on the ground, and what should have been, like, an, a great defensive play, strip, sack, fumble, recovery, ends up being actually, no, you know what, we recovered this, Dallas ball still. That's, like, that's a game-changing play that didn't happen because Biadish just went, no, not letting this happen. Not on my watch. I am recovering this football. No, I get it. It was uh, that's what I'm saying. It was a great, it was a great back and forth game. And I think if you're just looking at the odds of what we're going to see in the playoffs, the odds are in the favor of this is what we're going to see in the second round. Yeah, I mean I, that the Eagles, the first game, the divisional round, will be in Philadelphia against the Cowboys. That's assuming that the Cowboys beat the NFC South champion, either the Bucks mm-hmm. or the Panthers, and it's assuming that the Vikings and 49ers 
win their their wild card right. games. Like those are the assumptions, right? And then if this if that doesn't happen, if it's not the divisional round, if they did see each other, it would be in the uh, conference championship. I think this was a good game for both sides. Like Dallas comes out of this game winning, which is obviously important, uh, beating the Eagles' backup quarterback, which is also important. I think generally feel better about themselves coming out of this game than they did going in. Philadelphia lost the game, but showed that the offense still hums with Gardner Minshew. They showed that double cheek push is a cheek agnostic uh, cheat code. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter whose cheeks you're pushing. As long as you're pushing them with two guys, it will work. Um, Did this hurt Jalen Hurts' MVP candidacy? Because if they had gotten shut out, right, everybody would be throwing their votes at Hurts, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't help, but it, I don't think it hurt them i mean the fact that he missed a game is more damaging than what happened when he missed the game uh, to me I mean, not apparently who the, the voters don't seem to care if you're on the field or not some voters um oh yeah you're a voter <laughs> the uh so they they showed that and they they still they show that they could have would have should have won the game but for four turnovers right a couple of which were unlucky i guess but not like it's not like Minshew went out there and just like lost his mind and started pitching the ball to the defense you know what i mean so I think Philadelphia feels fine coming out of this game as well. Um, by the way, this game also featured a, a collision of worlds for me. Dan Quinn apparently phoned Stuart Lancaster, yeah, who was a Stu. former England rugby, uh, former England national coach, but current Leinster coach, assistant coach. It's your team to find out how to stop the rolling mall. So Dan, the, the, the double cheek push, friend of the show, Dan, been on the show. <laughs> yes, yes, calls. Leinster, yes, your team, uh huh, right. Apparently, he was on the phone for like an hour yeah. with Lancaster, give him chapter and verse. Didn't work, but you know. But he at least you know. Got well, it didn't work because I think, think fundamentally the, the thing is basically unstoppable. And yeah. when you when you consider the rules attached to football and the fact that you only need it to gain half a yard, it's basically not possible to stop it. Like the re the ways you stop it in rugby work, but they probably give up half a yard before you can get it Which done. Is what, yeah, so you know you what I mean. In football, right. I mean, so there's a chance. My um, One of my off-season predictions, Dan Quinn may be in the mix for the Colts head coaching job. I could see Quinn getting that job two hours right up the road here. Mm. You might be the guy, right? Now, he doesn't have to beat the Eagles and all that stuff every single – but you still want to stop the ball. Sure. You still want to stop it. So you might be the expert right up the road here. Oh, well, look, Lancaster's going to Rassing, right? He's going to be busy. He's, going to, he's a head coach again, right? So yeah. he, he doesn't have time for that crap. Definitely not. I've got all the time in the world. You could be Dan Quinn's guy. Right. Yeah, just get up to Indy got if it. he's there. There's a lot of right. a lot of projection here. Um, Eagles, their short yardage stuff still worked really well as well, which is yeah. why, you know, uh, Shane Steichen is seen as one of these head coaching candidates as well. Like, they are so unstoppable at the stuff that they do all the time that teams now have to sell out to stop that stuff and therefore completely ignore other stuff. So they're, they're really good at that kind of um, short yardage slide to Dallas Goddard in the flat. To the, or to, to somebody else in the in the flat, and then they just hit it over the top because everybody bit on top of that. Like, and the same with the double cheek push stuff. Like that is so unstoppable that they're able to run like jet motion off it, and immediately they're outside of the the entire defense and running for twenty yards. It, it is it is amazing the difference in some offenses where it's third and fourth and short, and you're just like, what are they gonna do? What are they gonna pull out now? They've got some answer. They have some some wrinkle off the last wrinkle off the previous wrinkle. And and they they've studied this and they're going to do it well. And then there's the Bucks. <laughs> but I think the other thing is, it's 
the teams that are really good at it are the teams that hit you with one thing over and over and over and over again until you're clearly cheating and then they hit you with something else. The problem with the teams that are the Bucks or teams like that is that they're doing the creativity before they've like earned the cheat. Mm. Like you're yeah. trying to sort of take advantage of something that you haven't opened up yet. So all you're doing is just like randomly calling plays. Whereas the Eagles are like, well, we've shown you something that's basically unstoppable a bunch of times. And if you do anything crazy to try and stop it, that's when we're going to hit you with something else. So the thing that they were doing all the time works. And then as soon as you start trying to sell out to stop that, then they hit you with a counterpunch. Like that's, that's the difference. Like other teams are just out here randomly calling short yardage stuff, hoping something works. All right, so the Cowboys move to 11-4. and four. Eagles fall to 13-2. and two. Eagles still the most, you know, they're most likely finish is number one in the NFC. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, I think Minshew played fine, threw for 355, had the two picks in there that you described well, probably not completely on him. And uh, Dallas is going to turn around here, play Thursday night against the Titans, and uh, probably going to be the number five seed in yeah, the NFC. in a game where Tennessee doesn't need to play anybody. Right. So who knows what that game will look like in terms of Titans I mean, starters. Dallas could be in a point where they don't – they could win the division – Technically, but as soon as the Eagles win, they might be resting starters. In By the way, can you imagine we're going to get some we're going to get some all time lines from Al in that game? We got a Thursday night game where nobody has any interest in it, hey, including Malik, the teams involved. Malik Willis. Well, yeah, if, if they don't care to win. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We've got two teams that might not care to win playing each other with a bunch of starters probably rested on a Thursday night with Al. I mean, on the bright side, you know Al's going to go to a nice restaurant. As we get to New Year's. I'm just saying, he's, the oh, man yeah. is not going to be happy during that game. No, no, no. Al will not be excited. And Al, Al has the definition of F.U. money. He's, he's going to have no problem voicing his disquiet or dissatisfaction with this game. Come on, That's Amazon. This is terrible. Steelers 13, Raiders 10. Steelers move up to 7 and 8 now. Still alive. The yeah. winning season, or the non-losing season, is still alive yeah. somehow. They just need a win and a tie. Just a win and a tie. It's an eight, eight and one here. Uh, Kenny Pickett with a big fourth quarter comeback. Really emotional night with the immaculate reception and um, anniversary, the Franco Harris uh, retirement ceremony at, at halftime. I mean, I didn't realize until this week this was the reason why they were doing that game, that it was the big yeah. 50-year anniversary. The this whole was, thing was set up, and yeah. they, the, they had the – Franco Harris's a football life documentary it was sort of timed to, to you know coincide with the um, the anniversary of, of it all, and then Franco Harris passes away a few days before, and it, the whole thing sort of takes on an extra dimension of remembrance and commemoration and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so uh, emotional night, and then you know it was kind of a kind of an ugly game offensively for both teams for for much of it. The Raiders' offense was atrocious again after a good start, right? They scored a touchdown early, and that's it. Mm. Um, Derek Carr, I, I get to look up his numbers in the cold, but remember like, cold. remember his MVP season? It's like, oh, Derek Carr's an MVP. He had like 2.9 yards per attempt in the cold in Kansas City that year. People still voted for him for MVP for some reason. <laughs> um, Carr struggled in, in a lot of these games. Raiders fans are going to say, no, no, last year he had a good game in the cold or something. Yeah, whatever. Um <laughs> Raiders remain just extremely inconsistent. And then the Steelers just have this knack for, like, who's making the plays? Who's the guy? You know, they just find a way to play well on defense. They did a nice job up front, slowed uh, Josh Jacobs in the run game. And um, Kenny Pickett, man, he's got a little 
he had a little fourth quarter magic after early in the season, the Sunday night game. He fourth quarter not so not so magic. Throw it away a couple times. This was fourth so quarter bad. magic for Kenny. Yeah, um, rookie Dylan Parham kind of got his ass kicked by Cameron Hayward. Oh, Hayward was uh, fantastic. Hayward has had a lot of games this year where he's beat up on rookies or young offensive linemen. Like he That's just gets do. those isolated matchups, like Cole Strange. Um, and just goes to down on those guys. Like, he beat Parham a few times bad. Um, so Parham ends up with an atrocious grade coming out of this. Gave up nine pressures. Oh, man. It's just like more than the rest of the offensive line gave up combined. It's not good for me in the model. Well, I, I mean, Parham's had a weird season where I think he's actually played pretty well overall. But every, every now and again, he has a game, like against the Cameron Hayward, where he just gets wrecked, like, all game long. And I think that's going to drag his grade down overall. But, like, his sort of week-to-week baseline has actually been pretty good. I think he's been a part of this offensive line turning itself around and improving and, and being a big thing for the for the Steelers or for the Raiders generally. Um, but just, you know, a game like this didn't help. In all of the craziness here as far as the AFC playoff picture goes, I know we talked about the Titans and Jags as win and you're in. I think there's a scenario where the Titans can still win – Make it in as a wild card? The Titans? I believe so. Because the Jets, the teams ahead of them, the Jets, Patriots, and Dolphins could all lose the rest of their games. Yeah. Right? The Titans could win both of their games, but they would win the AFC South. I think there's a scenario where like an 8-8 eight and eight Titans or Jags team how do they, could get in. How do they jump Miami? It would be, uh, do they have the tiebreaker? If, well, if Miami finishes... Eight and nine. Yeah, but one of those games is against New England. In fact, Miami don't they play the New England, the Patriots and the Jets? They can't. Oh, maybe you're right. Also, I was going to say. So, like, I th- I thought that the Steelers still have a. They might. I'm just saying that that's a weird ass scenario because they have to jump three teams, all two of which they all play each other. I'm not doing the scenario stuff. Good. But the the Steelers are tied at seven and eight with the Patriots, Jets, and, and Titans. Yeah. It is interesting because, you know, with the flow of the season, you're thinking, well, the Jets are this, what were they, 6-2, and 5-2? and two, This playoff caliber team. Yeah. And, and the Titans be. were going to be this playoff caliber team. And the, you know, the Steelers are terrible and the Patriots are just up and down. And now all of a sudden they're all tied at 7-8. At and eight, so. Yeah, and heading in dramatically different directions depending on who you're focusing yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, the Steelers have kind of gotten back to that. They're playing tough defense. And, you know, you've got guys like Hayward who are making plays and Mick Fitzpatrick gets his big plays and, and all that stuff. But um, – I thought Pickett looked good again, man. It doesn't always show up on the stat sheet, but I thought Pickett looked pretty good in this one. Yeah. I mean, he looked – yeah. <laughs> no? You don't want to be encouraged? Oh, I, so, uh, you know, the, talking about Kenny Pickett is all f- fine and good, but I, on the other hand, want to focus on something that really matters. Um, why does Josh, Mc, Josh McDaniels not wear headgear that has a crown on it? So he, he pivoted. It's freezing-ass temperatures in Pittsburgh. So we pivot from the visor, which obviously circle cut out in the top of it. It's like a, it's a baseball cap with the top cut off it, essentially, is what a visor is, if you didn't know. Uh, so it's cold. You can't wear that. It's freezing. you got to wear a hat, a proper hat, woolly hat. But he, he wore one with the top cut out of it. So it was just like a headband. It was like a, like a jogging ear band thing. Why not just wear a hat? I don't know. I would wear a winter hat. Right. Well, he, Maybe two of them. Two of them. Well, yeah. I mean, that might be overkill, but I would I mean, wear I would, a hat. I would want to stay warm. Yeah. There are coaches out there not wearing gloves either. 
Yeah, but you can stick your hands in your pockets. Like yeah, they're always writing. They're always writing on their napkins and stuff. Yeah, napkins. Um, Rest in peace to Mike Le- Mike Leach. Yeah. I was writing on that little index card. I just it feels like if you're it's cold. Wear a hat. Waltz doesn't. Don't care wear a in the chat. Don't wear a. Nobody else cares. The hell about that thing is. Josh McDaniel's headgear. I'm more worried about after. Uh, why can't they put any sort of uh, consistency together? Because they have a coach that doesn't wear a hat. Yeah, that must be why. Right. Um, Derek Carr, as much as right as Devontae Adams is breaking out, they're, they're figuring it out. Two for nine, the Carr to Devontae Adams connection. It was just off the entire day. I mean, if you're a Devontae Adams fantasy owner, not that I am, you're sitting there watching like, all right, where are the catches? Yeah. Well, it was just late. off, like just missing on a bunch. Yeah, it was late in the game where it was like a classic Rodgers to, to Devontae Adams thing. It's like, oh, look. Uh, isolated coverage one-on-one for the you know one of the few times in the game they left him one-on-one insta back shoulder only he back shouldered it just like off the field yeah you know what was that it was just bad but like those are the plays right where rogers looks up it's like oh look he's one-on-one on the outside boom immediate auto throw i'll back shoulder it the db has no shot Devontae reacts quicker it's just routine pitch and catch first down for aaron Rodgers and Devontae adams like car Saw the same thing, attempted the same thing, and then just missed the field. Well, Steelers have the Ravens next week. This should be a good game. Titans play. I mean, uh, Steelers just played a whole bunch of good, good close games here in recent weeks. All right, let's get to Sunday's action. We get three more games here okay. at the nine o'clock hour. Sunday afternoon, one o'clock, Christmas Day. Green Bay Packers twenty-six, Miami Dolphins twenty. Fascinating back and forth game here, Sam. Early on, it was uh, the Dolphins got up. Uh, 10 to 3 they were up 17 to 10 and then up 20 to 10 right so they um every time the packers would make a little bit of a comeback the dolphins come back with a huge play like Tua to jason uh to uh jalen waddle for 84 yards similar I mean, how many times has he done that this year like here's this you know mi- intermediate pass to waddle it just poof, outruns the entire defense um at one point Tua had what like nine completions for 200 something yards ridiculous um in a weird st- and then in the second half uh two just kept throwing interceptions yeah and then from a packers perspective when we talk about fourth down aggressiveness like this entire game was the packers going forward on fourth down their first touchdown is fourth and goal from the one they have a fourth and two where aaron Rodgers overthrows i think it was christian watson they have another key fourth down where Rodgers hits Watson over the middle. Like this entire game came down to the Packers just saying, no, we got to keep going for it, got to keep going for it, can't settle for field goals. And it ends up working in the end for the Packers. It was a weird game where, like I saw somebody say this, and this is probably reasonably true for every quarterback, that, you know, outside of the interceptions, he played really well, right? Like if you take away the plays where he throws the ball to the defense, he actually played very well. Tua, this is, you know, in particular. Um, and I think, so it's, it's very true for, I think, everybody. But it, I think it was specifically true for Tua in this game where outside of those interceptions, he had a better grade than Aaron Rodgers, um, who himself had an interception. Um, but also, not only that, but then you have the enhancing factor of what the offense looks like when everything's working, right? Like early in the season, when this offense was unstoppable, when Tua was the quarterback, it was the number one offense in the league. They were breaking all kinds of records. So take away the interceptions, and Tua had 14.1 yards per attempt. 
He had a passer rating of 130, an average depth of target 10 and a half. Yeah, like, I'm that saying that's not him, though. Like, that's not all two. No, I'm not saying them. it is. But I'm saying that when in this game, simply outside of those turnovers, he was playing ridiculously well, and the offense was unstoppable. But then once they put themselves in a hole, he just kept digging, and the interceptions were terrible. Um, the second one, there was some kind of breakdown between him and Raheem Mostert. I think of which Mostert was probably primarily responsible. But like the third interception in particular, the one where, okay, now you've made a couple of mistakes and now you're in a hole and now you actually need to dig out of it again. Go do something good. That was the most inexcusable throw he made where it's like, why didn't you – like that was just cover two. Why did you pitch the ball to the cover two corner? In fact, not only was it a bad decision, you passed up the open guy to make the bad decision and throw it into coverage. Like – Tyree Kill is open underneath on the slant. You hit Tyree Kill open underneath on the slant. Yeah, it was really weird, man. I mean, this was the Tua Apollo game. Tua Apollo. That's not as good as uh, Tua turned the ball over. Yeah, I know. Which was trending. That was trending. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying, I just, Tua Garoppolo comp. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, he also also fumbled early on on a sack that they recovered. Um, And as you mentioned, like the, the first interception. Did you see the Jair Alexander breakdown? Yeah. Like, man, that meant – he's like, basically, like, that guy's fast. I'm playing bail. And I was like, man, he's overthrowing it. I'm going to catch it. All right, great. <laughs> yeah. So I get my hands. Um, but that was it, right? Like, it wasn't a read or anything. Like, Tua just missed it. Bad. Yeah, which is – It I wasn't mean, even a bad misread of coverage. It was just a bad overthrow. The last one, as you said, misreading coverage. Um, both of those in the fourth quarter and in comeback attempts, right? It was a 20-20 when he first throws the interception to Jair Alexander. And then they're down six, 26-20, has the opportunity for the game-winning comeback, throws the interception. Um, Dr. Eager detests the field goal to go up six, mm. right? Um, for multiple reasons. Who, oh man, what other game was there this week where somebody kicked the field goal and got away with it? Was it this one? Who else won by six earlier this week? But that first interception is why, like, I, those happen. Right. Sometimes quarterbacks miss throws. They're inaccurate. They're not robots. Like sometimes you're just going to miss by a little bit. Okay. I, I'm okay with that. That that's the kind of play that happens every now and again. The third one and the second one, as we said, was a breakdown in communication between him and Mostert, where Mostert probably screws him. The third one, um, that that just can't happen. Like those are the kind of mistakes that should not happen because it was obvious. Like there's no pre-snap. They didn't get fooled. They didn't disguise coverage like they showed cover two you had an open play against cover two and you decided to ignore it and throw it straight to the corner trying to hit a throw that just isn't open against cover two like that that's the throw that Tua can't make if they want to be you know a real if they want to make the playoffs I guess at this point yeah because I mean I, I can't remember the game that I'm thinking of but um anyway the reasoning for not wanting to go up six is you know, a team that's chasing three is not going to use all four downs. They're going to play a little bit more conservative and try to kick the field goal in that game-winning attempt versus going for the, you know, taking that extra down and going for the touchdown. Obviously, it worked out um, in their favor. But I thought, look, um, Matt LaFleur going for it as often as he did. Not that all of them were like, he didn't pass up a ton of easy field goals or anything like that early on, but the aggressiveness that the Packers showed, I think they needed it. And then... Every now and then, you know, Rodgers has this ability to um, – he did throw an interception, which I thought was 
maybe pass interference, like just absolutely destroyed at the catch point. But he had another one that should have been picked by Xavier Howard. Xavier Howard never drops those. Every time it's like, man, Rodgers is missing. He's overthrowing. He missed A.J. Dillon in the flat by a mile. And then all of a sudden he scrambles out and throws that Mahomesian. It used to be a Rodgers play, but now it's Mahomes. Roll to his left, just drops an absolute dime to Mercedes Lewis. Mercedes Lewis, your sixth offensive lineman down the field, making the 31-yard catch. I mean, every now and again, Rodgers just pulls those plays out. So it's kind of like the Brady discussion. Like, it's not necessarily physical, and you know, any of the decline or anything. There's some more, there's more missed throws in there. It's a little bit more difficult. But every now and again, you can turn back the clock, and it looks great. And that was um, just a fantastic throw by Rodgers. Middle of the field was open a ton for the Packers, and they took advantage. So, I mean, it was a good win by the Packers, and it was the perfect weekend for the Packers. As I mentioned earlier, hours ago on the show, Giants, Commanders, Seahawks, and Lions, the four teams ahead of the Packers in the playoff picture, all lose. And now the Packers favored, as you mentioned, against the Minnesota Vikings, and then they have the Lions in Week 18. It's actually it's a different Packers team, man, isn't it? Just feels different. The defense, defense was weird too, right? Where they're they're giving up these explosives, but then every now and again they look like the team that should have been earlier in the year. I thought the Dolphins would have a little bit more success on the ground. They had success, but they didn't stick with it a ton because of game flow, because they're picking up fifty-two yarders and eighty-four yarders flipping the field. But the Packers defense making just enough stops in the end, and you know sealing the deal with the interception. So. Now the Packers are going to get the hype this week. If they, be, I mean, if they beat the Vikings, they probably make the playoffs. Are you in the playoff machine now? I am. Yeah. Um, if they beat the Vikings, because everybody kept losing. Yeah, I and mean, because the, they're look, winning, they still have to beat Detroit in the final week of the season, which is not guaranteed or anything. But you know, but they're at home. Yeah, like Washington has to play Dallas in the final week of the season. They have to play Cleveland um, this week. Even if they beat Cleveland, if they lose to Dallas. They might not make it, and that Dallas might not have anything, have anything to play for in Week 18. But, I mean, look, it's legit. Like, Green Bay have a real shot of making the playoffs now, which seemed absurd like a few weeks ago. Yeah, and then the first-round matchup, because if they do beat the Vikings, we're talking about the Niners maybe taking over the number two seed. If the Packers sneak in as the seven, because remember, it might be Packers-Niners. Remember round. a few weeks ago, we were like, um, we'd just seen the Jordan-Love uh, game and it's like, oh, I mean, Love actually looked pretty good there. That's a that's a first from from what we've seen from him in the NFL. You know, we're just wait, basically we need one more loss so that they're officially out of this, so that we can sit down Aaron Rodgers and see like a few weeks of Jordan Love to end the season, and then maybe that changes everything for Green Bay. And the, like the loss didn't come; <laughs> they've still won. So it turned from well, we just need one more to like mathematically make them out of this to now. I think they're actually probably favored to make the postseason. Yeah, it's incredible. They're still hanging around. And then if you know if the Packers are the seven and they're playing the Vikings or the Niners or whatever, you know, could be. I mean, could look, be more as, exciting than seeing the Commanders or the Giants in there. I think there's a lot of these tweets out there, but Rich Eisen tweeted something like, you know, don't don't let Aaron Rodgers get hot and get into the postseason. You know, because he's one of those quarterbacks that has the ability to to be that guy. Oh, and he'd probably be better in this like underdog nobody believes in us role because it, it certainly hasn't worked when they've had the number one seed and right you've had to go through green bay exactly that being said rogers doesn't exactly have the best postseason record in the world um but it's i mean it's true like if there if ever there's a quarterback that has the capacity to outperform that 
This is also 15 straight wins for Green Bay in the month of December. That's pretty insane. Yeah, it is. And then for the Dolphins, so they fall to eight and seven. Um, they're fighting for their playoff lives right now. They're going to be they're the seven seed. They play New England um, in Week 18, which could determine the whole thing. But um, I have them dropping out of the playoffs. Who's going in? The Jets. Yeah, the Jets making the playoffs. Apparently. Wow. Dolphins battling. So the Chargers can seal the deal tonight with a win over the Colts. That's, by the way, based off the, the Week 18 game between the Jets and Miami. That's a winner-take-all You're taking according the, to my playoff. The, oh, so it's, oh, so Miami plays? The Jets in Week 18. In Miami and New England this week. New England this week? Yeah. You say? Yeah. So Miami's going to New England and going to New York? Uh, no. New York at home. Or, the, yeah. New York and Jets Miami. at home. All right. So uh, it's a battle there. But, like, the Dolphins as the seven seed – wouldn't you think I, – I don't I, – I have a feeling the Chiefs end up with the number one seed at the end of the day. But if, like, the Dolphins were going into Kansas City in the playoffs, wouldn't you say, hey, I, I'm not expecting Kansas City to lose in the wild card round, but don't you think the Dolphins have that chance to maybe pull that offset, uh, upset just because of their offense and the explosiveness as long as two is not pitching the ball to the defense, as you said? Yeah, which is certainly a problem. Um this was a game, though, where I, as much as they lost because the quarterback turned the ball over a bunch, this felt like a little bit of a bounce-back game from – because remember, Buffalo didn't, didn't use the blueprint, didn't use any of the stuff that we've seen from San Francisco. probably not a blueprint. And from the Chargers. No, I think there was. Um, but Buffalo didn't use it at all. They just – they run a different defense, and they went, no, we're good with what we do. So as much as Miami's offense did fine against the Bills, it – felt a little bit artificial relative to what we're expecting from other defenses. But I think the Packers mixed up some of that stuff, and it still worked, other than when Tua threw the ball to them. So we're in this world where Miami's offense probably isn't quite as good as it was earlier in the season because I think teams at least have a read on what they're trying to do uh, better. But they are capable of still making really a lot of big plays, you know, like I said, when Tua didn't throw the ball to the defense, they averaged 14 yards per attempt, which right. is insane. So that still makes them scary if they hit the postseason. Agreed. We'll see if they can see if they can sneak in now. Dolphins almost collapsing here, Sam. All yeah. right, two more Sunday games. As expected, the Los Angeles Rams put up 51 points against the Broncos. Oh, man. 51-14. Rams over the Broncos. Yeah. Baker Mayfield, the uh, MVP. The MVP. MVP of the game. Yeah. It was great. I mean, this was supposed to be a good game. I was kind of glad. I mean, coming into the year, I was kind of glad. It wasn't, uh, you know, there, was, there wasn't much on the line unless you're a Lions or a Seahawks fan. Got to relax. Midday Christmas. I watched the Nickelodeon version with the kids. They enjoyed that. They, they liked the slime. There was a lot of slime. Mm. Every time you score, the slime everywhere. Yeah. That was fun. Baker Mayfield's been good in two out of three games for the Rams. Well, <laughs> not really. One good game with the Rams, a good half of a quarter with the Rams. One good game, and a one bad good drive. Game. Yeah. Two drives. Yeah. One good game, one bad game, one game where he was bad for seven-eighths of it. Yeah, but, but had got the playbook like 48 hours beforehand. Throw it out. Throw it out. I mean, Baker Mayfield, two games into his Rams career – with no help, is out here breaking records set by Kurt Warner for a completion rate in the game. That's silly. That shouldn't happen. 
Um, I mean, God, this the, the story of this game, though, was Denver, right? Like, whatever. Okay, the Rams put up 50. Baker Mayfield, great. Well done. You know, MVP right up there with such exalted luminaries as Mitchell Trubisky. Um, but this was just – this was a new low point for what has been a season of low for the Denver offense. They were miserable, abject, pathetic. This was awful. And I, I, I don't – has there ever been a worse overall quarterback situation than – having this version of Russell Wilson and the contract that comes with him. Because, look, when you drafted Jamarcus Russell, number one overall, that was problematic, right? Actually, no, I suppose those, those ones would have been as bad. When you, before the CBA took all the guaranteed money away from the first-round rookies. Yeah, you were stuck with those Right, ones. when the number one rookie was getting paid like a top-five quarterback in the NFL, that was major, major disaster. But since that point... This is probably the worst quarterback situation in the NFL because you've got a guy who is playing like one of the worst quarterbacks in the league and you're stuck with him for at the very minimum one more year and probably two if you were like seriously looking at dead money. Whereas we've talked a lot about the Jets and Zach Wilson. It's they like, could cut him tomorrow and it yeah. would be fine. They'll, well, they'll grab Jimmy Garoppolo this right. offseason, whatever it is. We're already Denver, it's like how do we make Russell Wilson work? In this game, he had three interceptions, sacked six times. There was a sideline encounter between the Broncos' offensive line and then backup, Brett Rippon. We have Dalton Reisner and Brett Rippon. Reisner actually pushed Rippon on the sideline. There is footage of that. Um, I didn't get the exact – you know, I detest when people try to project what they're arguing about. I think the commentary was that they were upset about Russ taking sacks that he shouldn't have taken. Which is fair. Which is, which is likely, but I'm not going to declare that as fact and you know, unless you actually know. But clearly, either way, they're arguing about something on the sideline, and it's Reisner. And the way it was positioned was Brett Rippon. It was a sideline reporter reporting it, too, so there was, there was probably some truth in there. Brett Rippon sticking up for Russ, sticking up for the QB room, so to speak. Um, so the Broncos are 4-11. The season's been terrible, all that stuff. But in a season of really low lows – is this the lowest? Like, is this it? Yes. For Nathaniel Hackett and the entire Broncos yes. offensive Look, the, regime. The Broncos are a very beat-up team. They've got a lot of injuries on top of everything else. It's a disaster. On the other hand, the Rams are also one of the most beat-up teams in the NFL and just hung 50 on them with what is essentially a preseason roster plus Bobby Wagner, Jalen Ramsey, and Baker Mayfield has been in the building a couple of weeks. That is about as bad as it gets. Like... All the way through this season, the Broncos' defense has been playing lights out, and the offense has just been this failure to match them at any kind of level. This game, it was like the Rams had a little bit of early success, and the defense just went, oh, forget it. Like It's Christmas. Screw this. We're going home. And they just checked out. And when that happens, like all of a sudden, the Rams are just going to put up a ton of points. The Broncos' offense still can't get anything done. And the whole thing was just like an absolute – joke of a game from Denver's perspective like this was the kind of game that would get people fired in ordinary circumstances and that's like independent of what else has been happening over the course of the year this is a disaster for Denver yeah Denver's defense as you mentioned played so well this entire season but Cam Akers carved him up he had three touchdowns looked really good um, nobody had more than one pressure for that 
Denver defense, the yeah. Denver pass rush that's been incredibly good against a Rams offensive line that's beat to hell. Nobody had more than one pressure. Baker finishes 24 for 28 for 230, a couple touchdowns in there. One of his most efficient games that we've seen maybe since probably 2020 with the, uh, with the Browns. So, yeah. I mean, by contrast, like on the other side of the ball, Michael Hoyt, who looks like the kind of guy that plays Jack Youngblood in a Kurt Warner movie, got eight pressures and a couple of sacks. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. You can't – Denver get Randy Gregory back, and he gets one pressure, and it doesn't change anything. Like, on the other hand, the Rams are stitching this together with guys that, you know, change numbers before the game and play lights out on defense. It's, this is, it's just not comparable. How old do you think Kurt Warner is? I mean, I'm not saying like playing with Jack Youngblood, but you know, he would. Kurt Warner showed up. Youngblood would have been one of those, you know, veterans that's around the place. You know, like okay. an old guy from gotcha. the game shows up. He's not in uniform. Play. No, no, no. Yeah. But like rocks up to the the box, or you know, there's some behind the scenes thing where he's gotcha. like, "Hey, as a former Ram, great. Let me tell you about the Rams." Yeah, I got you. Know, just yeah. a scene here or there, just to paint some color behind the the whole Kurt Warner thing. Just making sure here. No, no, not know, like Kurt's. A, Kurt's a friend of the show. I don't want people to think that you think. You know, he's like no, 70 no. or anything no, like no. that. So 51 to 14. Like maybe a flashback scene, right, where, where you get the Jack Youngblood playing through the broken leg thing. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's Michael Hoyt. As a Rams fan, you get to see some of those guys play, some of the future. Yeah. You know, Higby had a good game at tight end. Again, uh, Rams look really good offensively. Broncos look really bad. Kobe Durant, a phenomenal game. A couple of picks. He had the pick six, right? He had... Uh, both picks, right? Or not both picks. There's a lot of picks. He had two picks. Two picks. They had the pick six. Durant was uh, one of those uh, FCS mid-rounders last year with a really yeah. good athletic profile and showed it off in those on those couple of interceptions. How much do you think there. Bobby Wagner enjoyed picking off Russell Wilson? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he enjoyed that quite mm. a bit. Nickelodeon was fun. I don't like the Nickelodeon games unless it's, you know, 4-10 and 10 versus 4-10. and 10. I mean, the Nickelodeon commentary was ripping Russell Wilson. Like the what if the SpongeBob character, the starfish guy, he's he's out here hammering Russell. Like that's not what he wanted to cook. When you're getting ripped by a cartoon character on Nickelodeon, that's it's a new low. It's not a good day. See the the range of emotions that Seahawks fans had when Russell Wilson drops back to pass, throws an interception to Bobby Wagner, and helps earn them a better draft pick, all all in one swoop. Eli says it's Patrick Starr. That's the guy's name. Patrick Starr. That's what it was. Yeah. Uh, it's taken until Christmas, but Russell Wilson has finally thrown as many touchdowns as he has bathrooms in his house. Oh, he did it? Yeah. Great. So there's a Christmas miracle for Russ. Now they can sit him. <laughs> well, Brett Ribbon came in and threw a, was it a pick six or just a pick? Pick six. End. Uh, so that, you know, it's not looking much better. But Russell, like the Denver's now in this horrible, horrible spot where it's like, how do you fix this? Because it doesn't look that fixable. I mean, I tweeted during the game that, if all you knew, if all you had seen was 2022 Russell Wilson, there is not a hope in hell that you could convince that person of what his career looked like before this point. They wouldn't believe you. No, you'd never get to it. This guy was one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, hit the ground running rookie year, took a team to a Super Bowl, was on his way to a, like a dynasty and then, you know, there's a little bit of debate maybe about how much of it was him, the defense, the run game, the coach. Was he holding them back? And then, you know, the last couple of years, things went off the rails a little bit, and, but, but still, still really capable. And now, it's like this guy has never been good. This guy looks awful. I think, 
I think people would believe it though because we the QB cliff talk that everybody likes to to find right Peyton and Breeze and Montana and Brady now all these guys right everybody's gonna hit the cliff. I mean Montana never hit this. Kind of did. Well, no, no, he didn't. No, he was still Stop making the that. playoffs in '93 and '94. But Peyton and Breeze clearly looked different at the end. They were never this bad. They were never hit this low. Um, but the point I was gonna make is that's usually in your late 30s that that discussion's happening. And a lot of times after you switch teams, you have success. Even Brett Favre had some success, some success, and then he hit his cliff, his wall. And uh, Russ just hit it in a completely new system, which raises that other question, right? If he, had, if he had had one good year with Denver and then this happened, you'd start thinking about the physical and, you know, whatever. The fact that it's like new place, new system, new coach, it was like, man, was this – was this Pete? But the thing Pete's that makes nurturing it, environment the entire time in Seattle. The thing that makes it so toxic is that it, you know, again, he has his own office. Yeah, we're reading stuff into it that we don't have necessarily firsthand information on. But his receivers seem to hate him. Like, <laughs> there's video. Like for the last few weeks, Jerry Judy has looked like he's fit to kill somebody during the course of games. Just when plays are going wrong, like Judy is livid. Uh, there's a video here. Russ seemed to be trying to make the same play for the entirety of this game. Like, let's get out of the pocket, let's roll to the right, and let's make a hero ball. The kind of thing they did all, all career for Seattle, right? Let's run around, let's find some space, let's get out in the flat, and let's heave a ball to DK Metcalf deep down the field. They kept trying to do this in this game and just throwing the ball into coverage. But on one of them, multiple occasions actually, he got into space and then just didn't run for like a wide open first down. And there's one of these plays well, where he just he's, got concussed a couple weeks ago when he did that. He's out. Well, yeah, but, you know, slide. Um, he's out into open field. He's looking deep downfield. And uh, Cortland Sutton is, like, right in the camera view, losing his mind that Russell Wilson is about to not do one of two easy things. Either pitch the ball to Cortland Sutton for the first down or run into the wide open space for a first down. Instead, he's trying to go deep and make something insane happen. Cortland Sutton is losing his mind in the back of this shot. Like, again, it's, it's like the Zach Wilson stuff with the Jets. It would be one thing if you were just stinking and everybody loved you. If you're stinking and everybody hates you, that's a much bigger problem. If you're stinking and everybody hates you and you're on the hook for like a billion dollars in the next few years, oh, man. that's just the worst thing that could happen. It's worse than the Zach Wilson situation. And now you got everybody hates Brett Rippin too. Yeah, Brett's he, coming to your defense. Brett's in there. Yeah, Brett needs to just get out of that. Like, Maybe dude. Brett has his own office in Russ's office. Like a sub-office yeah. under the stairs? Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, I'll get, I'll get back up my guy here. Yeah. Uh, the thing you mentioned about Russ trying to like break the pocket and all that stuff, it also didn't work a whole bunch of times. He can't break free from pressure. Yeah, which is why like the, he like, used to. Which is why that commentary of the offensive line was pissed off that Russ was taking bad sacks. Whether or not that's actually what was happening, it's true. I mean, he's taken a like bunch of terrible sacks. There's a lot of plays in there where there's there's this defender is about to get him and all that stuff, and he's he's breaking down like he's going to do a little juke move, and he's moving like me back there. <laughs> can't make anybody miss, and it's just like, dude, you can't do it the same way. So that's what's going to be interesting this offseason when you think about how do quarterbacks age, right? And it's like, always, who do you compare to? The Peytons and the Bradys and the Breezes and all that stuff. Even when Peyton was throwing like a middle schooler, he at least knew where to go with the ball, and he was going to execute an offense. He just had to figure out which throws he can't make anymore. Yeah. With Russ, he's not as good of just like making good decision, make good decision, make good decision. 
half of his game was based off the physical talent that he had, if not more. So how is he going to age? And why is he doing this? Why is he aging at 34 or whatever he is? It's way earlier than expected. I'm trying to think of a quarterback who was fairly reliant on athleticism and would have tailed off very early in their career because of that. So, you know, Tom Brady, like, Tom Brady's 11 years older than Ross Wilson and still physically fine. Aaron Rodgers is whatever the hell he is, 38? Five, six years, five yeah. years older. So, and still, again, physically has not declined in any way, shape, or form. Um, so Ross doing it when he is, it's a little bit weird, but it's also he was much more reliant on athleticism than either of those guys. So to that point, it kind of makes sense. Like he's, he's declining earlier than even the old rate for old quarterbacks declining, which was like mid to late 30s, right? Like 37 used to be done. He's 34, but he relied on his athleticism a lot. So that kind of makes sense. I'm trying to think like who was another guy that would have relied on it to that extent that at 34 they were kind of toast. Um, Randall Cunningham. That's the one that jumped to mind. So I mean, what broke up, but then he got mossed in '98. Well, then he yeah. So then he he did the Peyton Manning thing, albeit in a different way. Like he basically was done from his Philadelphia career. Actually retired, right? Didn't he come out of retirement to play with the Vikings? And then with the Vikings, basically adjusted and he turned into more of a pocket passer because he just had Randy Moss and Chris Carter. I was like, oh, I'm just going to heave the ball deep to Randy Moss all the time. I don't need to run around anymore. And then that kind of rejuvenated him, albeit not for that long. I mean, but like he was done in like 94 was his last good year for the Eagles as a starter, which was my guy. Mark Brunel used to be quite the scrambler until he had his knee injury. And then he slowly regressed physically once he got to the Washington years in his late 30s, mid-30s. Yeah, so Ma, so Cunningham would have been 31 or 32 in that final year with the Eagles. So 30, 33, 30, yeah, Russell Wilson age, he'd retired. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Brady and Breeze and Rodgers maybe changing the, the whole perspective on that. Yeah. Like, really drastic. But it's also, it's going to hit different for different styles of player. Like, even when even the guys you were talking about, when they hit their wall. Like, the wall that Brett Favre hit was a totally different wall to the wall that Peyton Manning hit. I think yeah. that Brett Favre could probably go out there tomorrow and still fire an NFL arm, an elephant, still make all the NFL throws, arm strength-wise. Like, at whatever he is, 50. Um, Brett Favre's problem was he reached the age in your 40s where your body just starts to break when it didn't before, when it used to have elasticity and would bounce. Now it shatters. So guys that were hitting him, because Brett Favre always took a ton of hits, guys were hitting him and stuff was like breaking for weeks on end. It was not a fixable problem. That was his issue. Whereas Peyton Manning just went out there, like Peyton Manning can't make any of the throws anymore. Like he's, he's got a noodle. He can't, he no longer has a functional NFL arm. And when that one happened, now you're done. But like the, the wall is going to hit at a completely different level depending on what style of quarterback you are so for a quarterback like russell wilson who may not have played the game like lamar jackson but relied on his athleticism to break the pocket to evade guys in the backfield a little bit like mahomes you know manufacture plays that aren't there like he needs athleticism it was that and then deep play action game right yeah it was those two things and so russ like you don't even want if, if if the answer is we need him to just be straight drop back quarterback and we're going to work more quick game and all that stuff you don't even want him as your quarterback. Right, because he's, he's never not, been good at that. He's not good at it. Now, there was a point in his Seattle career where it's like, man, if you just mix a few more of those in, 
it'll help his overall game, give him some breaks so he's not relying on just uh, special stuff all the time. But now you're talking about the special's gone. What do you do with them? That's why you're so screwed, because if that's the answer, it's like, well, okay, he can't do any of this stuff anymore, which is what he was good at. So the only thing left is to turn him back into this quarterback where he's actually been bad for his entire career. And even the old stuff, you're like, well, if you just mix a bit of that in, that's why it was such a conundrum for Seattle because he was bad at that stuff relative to other quarterbacks, right? So the solution, the thing that would normally add um, untapped efficiency to the current state of the offense might actually be a net negative because you're making him do things that he's worse at. It was like the Cam Newton problem. How do you, uh, how do you make Cam Newton a more efficient and accurate passer? Well, let's make him throw more high percentage plays, but those are lower efficiency plays, so you actually end up having a negative or a net negative effect on his overall performance it's a it's a sort of counterintuitive end result to the thing that would normally work so if that is actually the only thing you're left with with Russell Wilson you're just stuck with a bad quarterback and you're stuck with him for at least another year or two because he's attached to like a million or a hundred plus million dead cap for a lot of money so that's like it's catastrophic We'll have plenty more on that, and we'll repeat ourselves a million times between now and next September. By the way, the Denver offensive line, I just want to, like, the, it's fine. It's, it's injury beat up. It's not the best thing in the world, but it's being made look dramatically worse by Russell Wilson than it is actually performing. All right, we're obligated contractually, contractually to uh, hit the last game. Bucks 19, Cardinals 16 in overtime. Overtime, Christmas night. Uh, Bucks move to seven and eight. They get that play-in game ish against next uh, Carolina next week. Playoff ish. Yes. Arizona falls to four and eleven. It was Trace, Trace McSorley's first start in the NFL. Uh, rough one across the board on both sides. You say that, and yet Ugly all I see is he covered the spread and gave me a correct pick. Because you never, ever, <laughs> ever bet on this Tampa Bay team to cover seven points against anybody. I just sneezed and have a hamstring cramp all at the same time. Huh. It's not usually a, a, an area of the body that's connected. It's amazing what's connected when you're 40. Well, like you hear people talk about how every part of your body is manifested somewhere in the foot. There's just like a, you know, one of those. All the way up through. Like phrenology as well, the, the head massaging thing. Like there are all these, I hesitate to call them, uh, you know, quack professions because there might be something to them, but it sounds bullshit. But, but like the idea that there's a piece like somewhere in your foot is every part of the body manifests. And if you just needle that area, you can fix your hip or whatever. I, I just didn't know that sneezing was connected to your hamstrings. Apparently it is. So here we are. Um, the Bucks offense seems to look good in, uh, you know, eight minute chunks. It <laughs> doesn't sound like enough. No, it's not enough. Um, this looked like the this was the, the Brady Cliff game, though. Like, everything was terrible. Misses Julio Jones early on. Two interceptions that were just underthrown and bad. And then, uh, well, one, with, you know, one under pressure. Foot reflexology. I don't care. I just, I needed to know what, the, what it was called. It's 931. We're, we're talking about the Bucks cardinals game. You might be. I'm talking about foot reflexology. Let's just, let's just chunk through it. <laughs> so the Bucks are down 16-6. Uh, to six. Yeah, or thirteen. Yeah, sixteen to six in the fourth quarter, and of course they uh, they come back, touchdown to get within three. Cardinals come back, make a couple explosive plays, just drop a handoff. Bucks come back with a field goal to tie it up to go 
to overtime. Bucks make a stop for the Cardinals. McSorley, you know, outside of a pretty nice 47-yarder to uh, Marquise Brown was uh, just a struggle offensively for the Cardinals. Um, and then the uh, Bucks get the ball back in overtime and they just drive right down the field. There was a point where whoever uh, was it Melissa Stark on the sideline was like, Brady just went up to his receivers and said, here's what we're going to do and gave him like a thumbs up. It did feel like Brady took over play calling. Mm. You know, it, they just they had like three or four plays that were like, hey, these are going to be open. Let's go. Nice little back and forth between Brady and Vance Joseph on the, against the blitz and blitz pickup and all that stuff down the stretch, and, and that was it. But um, the Bucks still look putrid offensively. Yeah. And if this was the, the game you're waiting for, for, uh, hey, Brady doesn't have it anymore and all that stuff, it felt like that for three quarters of the game once again. Yeah, it, but it also like this is this is the Bucks. Like they're not they're not coming out of this funk unless something changes on an institutional level. Like play calling disappears or the offense shifts or you know something like that. That's the kind of magnitude of change that needs to happen for this team to suddenly get it and pull themselves out of whatever spiral they're in. But it was the same story all season long. Like Brady is not playing well. None of the receivers are playing well. The offense overall isn't functioning. They seem to be waiting for like a dominant performance on the ground so that they can finally turn on play action because, of course, you need to establish the run before you can make a play action pass. Um, every time they do anything good, somebody screws it up by committing a penalty or, you know. And another touchdown taken off the board. It's just unbelievable. Like it's, it's mind-blowing how they keep achieving this. Back, so back-to-back plays, they go early snap. Brady fumbles it, catches it, throws to Julio Jones, goes through, weaves through the defense for a touchdown, negated by illegal motion. Mm-hmm. Next play, they convert the, they still convert a first down. There's a bit of a phantom holding call, but a holding call on Tristan Wirfs, and then they have to settle for a field goal. Like again, I don't know how you solve like one guy screws up, screws it up on every play. You can, but I that th- could be why like they hit these random stretches where like one guy just didn't screw it up for the entire fourth quarter. Yeah, no, no, that, that's absolutely what that is. Like for for a brief period of time, they get out of their own way and convert a few plays, and therefore they score some points. And oh, look, it clicked. But that's why I'm saying that as long as you're in this funk, which is lasting all season long at this point, you need to shift something much bigger than that. Like you can't, you can't just get everybody to suddenly stop making mistakes. What you have to do is to get more efficient to the point where the mistakes no longer matter the way they matter, which involves changing like the entire offense or the play calling. So yeah, when they go hurry up two minute, yeah, looks decent. I mean, at this point, I genuinely would just turn over play calling to Brady and say, "Go for it. Yeah. Call your own offense. Let me know how it worked out." It, it's I'm here if you need me. It seems like an easy narrative because there's so many games, the Rams and the Saints, and this game where they just put it in Brady's hands, two-minute drill, and, and the comeback happened. And this is even. But then with, you have the first half against the Bengals last week, right, where it was slower and play action and the whole thing, and they look great. That was I, their great stretch last week. But yeah, but that's why, like, I don't think it's. I don't think the, the solution is to just run a hurry-up offense the entire time. Like, I suspect that if Brady was given free reign of his own offense, Brady might use some more play action, regardless of whether they've established the run or not. Like, I just think at this point I would just say, you know, you've been around for a while, Tom. What would you like to run? Just let me know if you have any, pro- any questions. I'm over here on the sideline. Other than that, go nuts. Do what you like. See, see, see if you can I mean, do a better job points. of this. Like, they, they finally broke out the QB sneak again. This, they get... They got to second and one on a play after the Fournette Mall. Hmm. 
they get to second and one on a 14-yard run, and they get stuffed on three straight runs on second one, third and one, fourth and one. By the way, J.J. Watt was unblockable. Again, two weeks in a row. He's looked like vintage J.J. Watt. Vintage. I mean, every single run game, run play, he was single-handedly blowing it up. Not every, because, you know, at least five or six, he single-handedly blew up. Um, But, like, Brady's had control over the last couple years. Like, what's changed this year? It's it's just really weird. Um, Bucks defense played pretty well. Arizona's offense, just whatever they could, couldn't do much. You know, couldn't do much with McSorley back there, and uh, that was it. Couldn't get DeAndre Hopkins going. He only had one catch on ten targets. They they tried yeah. to force a couple. McSorley tried to force a couple late. Uh, Greg Dort should be just getting more offense in general. Ten catches for ninety eight yards. That dude's good. It's kind of funny how. <laughs> they've got the new Hopkins investment. They've got Rondell Moore. They've like brought in all those these big, high-powered receivers, and it's Greg Dortch that's the guy powering the passing attack at the moment. What, do you think, I mentioned this to you off-air, would the Arizona Cardinals potentially be a one-year destination for Brady for next year? You have Kyler Murray hurt. You have some pieces. With, you have Marquise Brown. You have DeAndre Hopkins, Rondell, Dortch. You have some pieces there offensively. The defense needs some help. Would Brady be a guy there? And they'd say, hey, it's going to be for a year probably because Kyler, who knows when he's going to even be healthy again. It's the <laughs> NFC West. It's the You're not going to the AFC. You still have to get through the Niners and the Rams probably, whatever. But could that be a situation? You got a dome? Maybe. I mean, so there's a few things at play. There's number one, as, as much as Brady is the greatest quarterback of all. So, oh, no, start. Let's back up. Number one. I don't think that Brady is physically declining and has hit his wall to the point where, like, oh, he's just – it's time. He's 45 years old. That's your inning. Good one. Congratulations. Have a great career. See you later. I think Brady can still operate at a very high level if he has a supporting cast around him that's pretty good. So um, that's number one. Number two, I think as much as that is all true and Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time, there still aren't that many teams that are going to be interested in him because – of either having quarterbacks already or the risk of a 46-year-old quarterback coming off his worst year. That immediately cuts the field down to a really small number. Uh, Number three, Brady has to be acutely aware of now needing a much better situation than he had this year in Tampa Bay, which even on paper looked okay. So Brady has got to be quite picky in terms of who he goes to. Now, the Cardinals institutionally are not a particularly good team right now like you know things have gone south across the board people are probably getting fired at the end of this year there's a lot of unknown and uncertainty about this Arizona team for Brady to be that interested and that's probably true for pretty much any team that's going to be interested in Tom Brady so we might be in this weird world where either Brady has to go to a team like Arizona where there's some major problems that could be an issue or he has to kind of look at the landscape and be honest with himself and go, I don't see a team that's capable of giving me what I need to be good again, so I'm out of here. Yeah, and there, there might not be that situation. Because I do he, kind of Unless wonder. he really wants to have like a sentimental one-year reunion in New England or something. Yeah, because I do kind of wonder, a lot of these quarterbacks that got old and they had the year that put them into retirement, how much of that was the, just the team around them fell apart? Like, how much, like Dan Marino, right? Could Dan Marino actually have been good if the team had been great around him? Like, he just reached that point where it wasn't that Dan Marino sucked now. It was that— Yeah, you're just not carrying the team like— Yeah, it was all of a sudden the team fell apart around him and just you can't 
survive past that anymore. All I'll say is I think the one thing working in Brady's favor is this, these exact conversations were happening happening before the 2020 season. Coming off a not-so-good sure. year with the Patriots, you don't want to invest in it, and it worked. Mm-hmm. Some team might convince themselves, well, we've, we've, we've seen this before. Brady will make but it work. But the difference being, I think, Brady's side. Later. No, 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 not even that. The difference, I think, is Brady's side of that equation now. Well, again, like who knows? The mentality of like all-time great athletes is deranged at best. But after this year, if you're Tom Brady thinking about coming back, I would imagine you have to be very concerned about what the team around you is going to look like before you're interested, right? So whereas a couple of years ago, I think Brady probably could have convinced himself that I can turn any of these teams into a Super Bowl contender. Now, can you make the same argument even to yourself? I don't know. Anyway, Bucks move to seven and eight, 19 to 16 win in overtime. And as mentioned, next week, the winner of the Bucks Panthers game. If the Bucks win, they win the NFC South. If the Panthers win, they tie for the lead in the NFC South, and the Panthers have the inside track with the tiebreaker. With the tiebreaker. Um, they Joe, would still have to beat the Saints in week 18, though. Another guy that's turned it on in recent weeks is Joe Tryon Chayinka, who's had a really good couple of games. Yeah. Randomly. Look at the Bucks defense. We don't talk about the Bucks defense enough. Sorry. The story's on the offense where they're struggling. All right, that's it. It's the longest show of the year. I'm done. Hmm. Week 16 in the books. Happy Boxing Day, everybody. Was it Merry Boxing Day? Certainly not. No, no, it's not. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We got our big show on Wednesday as well. And we'll be back on Thursday again, previewing all the Week 17 action. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. See you Wednesday.